Hello, and welcome to Rumor Flies. I'm Josh. I'm here to talk to you guys about something before we get into this episode. When we started recording, um, everything was fine, but we did have some technical issues. My computer completely doo-dooed itself, and my audio kind of drops in and out. And it was quite a dilemma for us because we didn't know whether we should just scrap it and start over again, or, um, you know, roll along with it. Now, as somebody who is very, very hard on himself and audio quality, it is not the best, um, but it is still fine. And the conversation was great and the content was there. And we ultimately decided that it would have been an injustice to completely just rob you guys of that because I felt like it was really well done um, as far as us interacting with each other and it was fun and I just didn't think it would have been fair and true to us if we did it over again and, and we didn't want to, to fake it essentially. So um, if there there is any issues with the audio jumping in and out, I wanted to apologize personally. I'm sorry and it's an issue that um, I have fixed and I think we're going to be okay from here on out. Uh, it, it is a difficult time right now with all of this stuff going on so I hope all of you are doing well staying safe, washing those hands, and socially distancing. Um, we will get through all of this together, and it makes it hard to record in person, as I like to do, and all of us like to get together and have fun. But um, So this was completely my computer just poo-pooing itself, and I wanted to say that I'm sorry if the, the quality drops a lot, and I hope you guys understand, and I really, really hope you guys enjoy this episode. Um, we are so proud of this. We know it's another long one, um, but you know we're proud of it, and we wanted to say thank you guys for staying with us for eight seasons. It is completely crazy that we've made it this long. So we love you. Stay safe out there, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to Rumor Flies, everybody. I am Ryan. I am Josh. I'm Greg. That's right. I said it normally. And are we ready to do some dunking right now? Actually, that's a probably a bad way to say it, but we're going to be doing some dunking on vaccine or anti-vax science. Uh, yeah, we, you have reached part two. Congratulations. We all made it here. Uh, I hope everybody's safe. And we are now going to be not talking as much about the history of vaccinations and such, but now we are going to be jumping into some of the hard science and addressing a lot of the issues that are among the anti-vax community. Josh and Greg, do you have anything to say before we want to get really deep into this? Yes, I do. Just okay. real quick. Um, thank you all for listening to part one. We know it was a lot. And, and uh, yeah, and I got to tell you, um, it is some of the, the, the most proud I've ever been of anything that not only that I've done, that I've been involved in. So thank you for listening. Thank you to you two. Um, not the band, you two specifically. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, I hope you guys enjoy this part. That's it. Yeah, you guys have an actual kid. I have a baby in the form of digital ones and zeros. I've been swaddling this thing and coddling it way too much. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um... The only thing I got to say is I'm really excited about this episode, but what I'm really excited about is my dumb Shut the side. fuck up, Greg. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Let's pop one I off. Hate, I hate me, too. I hate me, too. Okay. Uh, Ryan, kick yeah. us off, buddy. 
So, as I had said earlier, this is going to be not as much about the history of vaccines, but addressing a lot of the concerns from the anti-vaccination movement. It is not going to address every concern because some people have some really wackadoo theories, and it's kind of hard to get to those because, well, you got to go down a long pathway that they went down in order to like break down every single thing. However, we do have many topics that we are going to be covering. So strap in. It's going to be big. We are going to give you a quick overview on how vaccines actually work. We're going to give you an overview of all the vaccines that are given to children from the from one month old to six years old and address every single one of their actual risks, if any. And then we're going to talk about the Wakefield study, which we promised we would. Uh, we're going to talk about the actual culprits of autism. And we're going to mention some of the more sociological aspects of uh, vaccines. And then we're going to talk, we're going to take a stroll over to National Vaccine Information Center, uh, which, by the way, is anti-vax. It sounds very proper, but it's an anti-vax website. And we're going to address their issues. Lastly, we are going to... Oh, I was going to say, horrifying thing as I was doing research for this, both on part one and part two, but especially part two... Is the SEO of all the like bad groups? It's amazing how much they dominate the searches. Like being oh one, God. two, and third hit. I mean, it's crazy. It's oh no, it's crazy. a minefield of dog shit. It's ridiculous. Like you don't even. I, I don't trust any website that has the word vaccine or autism anymore. And some of them are reputable. It's just their names are so, like I said, innocuous. They do not seem to be anything misleading, but they are extremely misleading. But anyway, we are going to get to the current up-to-date stuff because we had said in the last episode that, you know, there are a couple of things that are not exactly uh, the cutting edge of the anti-vaccination movement. We're going to address the ones that are, and we're going to talk a little bit about this weird little situation that we're in in this point in time that we're recording this episode. So um, shall we start, guys? Yeah. All right. First thing we're going to talk about is how vaccines actually work. Now, are you guys aware of the concept of antibodies and antigens? Yes. Okay. More or less. I need to probably refresh her. So if you could do that, that'd be wonderful. So for <laughs> anybody that's not aware, uh, currently one of the most sought out things during this pandemic is something called an ELISA assay for antibodies for COVID-19. ELISA is, I want to say, enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. And what this does is it pretty much finds antibodies for what your body uses to fight a virus inside your system. Now let's get into the idea of antibodies, antigens, T cells, and the immune system in general. So say you have a small town with a very militant immigration policy. Your town, which is your body, does not want to let any sort of uh, potentially harmful invaders in. These are pathogens. However, most pathogens have something attached to them called antigens. These are very specific markers on them that can identify them as intruders. Now, what they have for the security system is you got your antibodies, which find the antigens on these intruders. So let's say it's like a uh, sniffing dog, like a dog that goes out and sniffs out this particular mark on the intruders. And once it finds it, the dog latches onto this intruder once it gets into your town, your body, and starts barking like crazy. This bark is known as an enzyme, which sends out a signal to any sort of hunter, that being an antibody, to find the dog attached to the intruder, the antibody attached to the antigen. 
Once the antigen dog is attached to the pathogen intruder via the antibody-antigen reaction, a hunter known as a macrophage goes out and tries to find this intruder. And when it comes across the barking dog, it shoots them both. Just kills them. And then it shoots them so badly that they blow into pieces. And the hunter takes the pieces of this intruder that has been destroyed, that being the pathogen, and brings it over to a, uh, I guess, a bounty agency or a tail collector or something like that, and gives the pieces to something called T-cells, which then report to the HQ, being the immune system, that they have found this new intruder. Here's what it looks like. Train some new dogs to find these specific intruders, and it won't be a problem anymore. It's like breeding dogs for hunting certain types of game. You know, they have like a bulldog or like, you know, duck hunting dogs or anything like that. That's what antibodies are. And this antibody test is what we need right now to find, well, if we are already immune and we have found this intruder inside of our body. Now, that's generally how the body fights bacteria. The problem with viruses is that they are more of body snatchers, where this intruder goes into your system and starts brainwashing uh, your citizens, that being your regular cells, into making more of them. It just takes them over. And the problem from here is that since the hunter and the dog cannot find the specific marker on there because it just looks like a regular citizen, they'll kill anyone associated with that. So it can kill a whole type of cells. It just goes willy-nilly, just killing everything. And that's why antibiotics don't work as well, because there's no necessary target. The only like weak time for the virus is when they're jumping from citizen to citizen to get them to make more brainwashed citizens to make more viruses. How do you solve this? Well... Vaccines. The way a vaccine works is that, say, just this spaceship goes over your town, that being your body, and drops off the corpse of one of the intruders that you have never seen before, and it's already either extremely weak or dead in itself, or you see the symbols that are associated with this actual intruder, that being the virus. It immediately gets picked up. Uh, by the hunters and taken over to the immune system and they say oh cool well now we know how to deal with this in the future if they ever come around and there's several ways to make vaccines the first way is just killing the virus and then introducing it to the immune system when it's completely inactivated an example of that would be the anthrax vaccine you can attenuate a virus which is something like uh, taking like influenza and then growing it in different conditions that are not so conducive for it to thrive. One example of this is inside of like chicken eggs. Uh, it's not the same as in human blood. So they have conditions that do not let it really thrive when it gets into your system and therefore it will die pretty fast and you will be able to pick up on that. Another way to do it is to actually raise it in human blood that is at like 96 degrees cell, uh, Fahrenheit so that it is used to a body temperature that is not really what humans are operating at. So when it gets into a 97 or 98 degree temperature body, it's not going to thrive and therefore it can get killed fast. And then you can also splice virus genes into a harmless virus version via something called a plasmid. This is how GMOs work. And I imagine this episode might happen in the future. We'll find out. But um, those are three ways to do it. Kill the virus, attenuate the virus, meaning to weaken it and put it in there, or splice certain parts of the virus and put it into something completely innocuous and let the whole immune system figure it out. Are we tracking so far? We tracking. Okay. So then, now that we've explained how most vaccines work, let's get into the actual risks of some vaccines. 
And we have gotten a list of the general regimen in the U.S. for a lot of the vaccines for a newborn from birth to about six years old. And I, before we get into this, because there are going to be numbers for risks of these vaccines, I compiled a list of other things that people commonly might have a risk of. In the United States, there is a 1 in 23,439 chance of dying from a gunshot wound every year. Just, that's for all of us. Dying in a car accident per year. 1 in 8,303. And then accidental poisoning per year is 1 in 5,243. If I have chances, like that's 1 in 5,243, guys, I'm still going to walk outside. I'm still going to eat every bit of food that I would usually order at a restaurant in a normal situation. Same for you guys, right? Are you ever worried about are you ever worried about dying of poisoning? Every day. Every day? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, you need to go to a doctor about a, a little bit of anxiety you might have, Greg. That's fair. Everyone should see a therapist at least once in their life. Very true. No shame. So most of the things that people worry about is something called cytokine storm syndrome, which is where your body has an overreaction to a uh, infection in your body and ends up pretty much going ballistic on all the cells in your body and you can have some serious reactions and possibly die from it. Cytokine storm syndrome is not common in the least bit. But let's get to the vaccines. First one, rotavirus, which was actually kind of pioneered by Dr. Paul Offit, who wrote Bad Advice and uh, Deadly Choices, two of the yeah, books yeah. that have been Shout instrumentally out to my boy, important. Dr. Offit. Dude, Dr. Offit, please come on this show. We we would really like that. I know he's a listener. <laughs> um, <laughs> so some of the actual uh, risks of the rotavirus are irritability, temporary diarrhea and vomiting, and then occasionally bowel blockage may happen at worst in one in 20,000 injections of the rotavirus vaccine. Here's the thing, guys. This was from an earlier version that is no longer used. So that's knocked out of the entire list so it's right now irritability temporary diarrhea and vomiting and also no rotavirus after that josh would you like to move on to the next one uh yeah i guess i should have uh said this from the top before we got into these um a lot of these have the same side effects such as irritability nausea low-grade fever um soreness things like that so it'll come up again but just know that like pretty much across the board that's all there well, it's because um, <laughs> most of it's administered in the same way, and we will expand on why those things happen. So I was gonna, I was gonna tease that, but yeah, I mean that. that yeah, okay, we'll get, we'll get to well, that. It's because of thimerosal and because vaccines cause autism. Greg, show over. I'm, I'm muting you. <laughs> <laughs> DTAP, also known as DPT, is a vaccine cocktail. I had a joke that Ryan cut. Um, I'm gonna go with vaccine combination uh, that fights against diphtheria, pertussis, also known as whooping cough, and tetanus. You can say diphtheria tetanus now if you really want to, Josh. Go ahead. <laughs> tetanus. Diphtheria uh, is a serious infection that can block the airway of the throat and cause serious breathing problems. Pertussis, also known as whooping cough, is a respiratory illness, uh, kind of like the flu. And it, it, it's fairly common, but it's super serious in, in babies, specifically um, those who have been born in less than 12 months, which checking my definition, that is a baby. 
So um, the whooping noise can be heard after a long coughing fit, and it, and it makes it hard for a baby to eat, drink, or breathe. So that's why it's kind of a, a serious issue. Um, so not to bury the lead a little bit, Josh, but it wasn't common for a little bit. I'm, we'll, we'll get to that. I know. We'll get to that. I know we will. But but um... and uh, tet anus is a nerve disease that is a toxin producing bacteria contaminating a wound. Uh, a it is bitch. also it is also known as lockjaw due to the locking of muscles in the body. And I imagine most people are familiar with it because tetanus is a thing you're threatened with and you got to get a booster shot if you step on a rusty nail or something. That's a very common booster shot that's administered for people in construction sites. I had a friend in college who stepped on one just in our house. At some point, you or someone you know is probably going to need a booster because of rust in a wound. R.I.P. Jim the Horse. Um, so, but I will say that for when I hear tetanus, I think of down periscope for some reason. I always think of Rob Schneider saying, I think I need a tetanus shot just from looking at it before he gets into the uh, submarine with Kelsey Grammer. (laughs) Don't know why it sticks out in my head every time I hear tetanus, but now I know that. But it goes to show you just how prevalent it is. And it's that it would be a joke that people would know what it means. And the fact that there is a tetanus shot is a great thing. So, yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know if we had a, 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 a casino, but if we did, I would have put the over under on the amount of Rob Schneider uh, references in, in the series uh, under two, and I would have lost. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on, the actual risk of uh, the vaccine. Wait, also, hold up, guys. I just need to stop you. Rob Schneider is an anti-vaxxer. I just realized that. Oh, no. Wow. I didn't know that. Okay. This summer, Rob Schneider's going to find out how hard it is to keep his kids alive. <laughs> I'm glad the dads are making those jokes and not me. I feel better now if I say anything uh, a little bit out of league. Okay. Dude, my kid's kid's a a blob shit machine. Have at it. (laughs) Um, The actual risk of the vaccine, going back to this, is typically a low-grade fever, soreness, possible loss of appetite, and swelling. Rarely, a child may have a seizure, a high-grade fever, or uncontrollable crying after getting the vaccine, but these sorts of side effects are so rare that researchers question whether they're even caused by the vaccine. Most kids have a few minor to no side effects. Nice. So the next one, we're going to move to the hemophilus influenzae type B vaccine, also known as HIB. This hib. one, yep, HIB, HIB, HIB. And this one is one that people, for some reason, are worried about. I don't know why, because once again, redness, swelling, where shot is given, specifically where shot is given, that's it, and then fever. And this is going to kind of like get wrapped into other things. Uh, we'll get to them. But once again, let's just truck on through here, Josh. What's the next one? Uh, PCV13, which is a uh, pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, and it can prevent uh, pneumococcal disease or basically forms of pneumonia. And it refers to any illness caused by pneumococcal bacteria, i.e. pneumonia. And this bacteria can be many types of illnesses, including pneumonia. I keep saying pneumonia, but it, it, it's correct, um, which is an infection of the lungs, which is the most basic form of pneumonia. And um, pneumococcal bacteria are one of the most common causes of, anyone? Pneumonia. Okay, moving on. Other types of infections relating to the bacteria <laughs> is like sinus problems, ear infections, meningitis, or an infection of the bloodstream, i.e., I got the bad blood. So what's interesting, though, is that PCV13 protects against 13 different types of bacteria that actually cause the disease. And potential side effects are redness, swelling, pain, 
or tenderness um, where the shot is given. Imagine that. Fever, loss of appetite, fussiness, feeling tired, headache, and chills. Young children may be, and this is the one thing that I wanted to point out about this one, that young children may be at an increased risk for seizures caused by fever after PCV-13 if it is administered as the at the same time uh, as the influenza vaccine. Oh, we'll get to that. Yeah, which that that is uh, something that's very prevalent in um, vaccines is how they relate to the influenza vaccine specifically. Yep, we'll jump back so, to that. Yep, so uh, next is IPV, Ryan. Yes, the polio vaccine, as it is better known. Now, the original, I have that in caps in my notes. Oral- I still don't understand the rules to polo. Polio, not polo. You, you fucker. You- <laughs> <laughs> and then there's water polo. It gets really confusing for a while. See, on polo, you need a horse. and water polo, you need a seahorse to ride on. So Look, that's all we how talked about on Twitter and the Patreon and everything was how we're 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 just this season is off the rails. We're going serious. Yeah, that guy tweeted us being like, man, you guys are just going for broke, huh? And I'm like, you know what? I'm bringing back old school rumor flies. Y'all want old school? That means we're never getting anywhere ever. Yep. <laughs> yep. 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 Especially for our longest episodes. Oh, my God. The file size on that one. So uh, <laughs> the polio vaccine. <laughs> The original oral vaccine did indeed cause some occasional full-blown polio or paralysis sometimes. I'm going to talk about that once again. Uh, Can you see a pattern here of I'm going to get to this? Uh, This occurred in about 1 in 1.14 million oral doses. Also, this oral vaccine is no longer in use, and the injective inactive polio vaccine has removed this risk. So now we have IPV, which is injected polio vaccine. That's what it means instead of, you know, the uh, oral version. Josh, you're next. MMR, uh, which is also... Well, so I am going to go a little bit deeper right here on this one just because of uh, the high amount of controversy. And I'm putting controversy in air quotes. I know you can't see it right now. Oh, MMR is our star player tonight. Oh, fucking right. It is the, the LeBron James of the vaccines, if you will. The Michael Jordans, the Steph Currys. Um, actually, the, probably the most apt comparison is Barry Bonds because of the steroids, but we'll get to that. <laughs> I would say that like uh, DTP is probably the Michael Jordan and MMR is the uh, is probably the LeBron James. Yeah, that's probably a fair comparison. But so um, MMR is measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. And so the thing about MMR vaccine is that it is a weakened live virus vaccine meaning that they are putting a portion of the virus itself that can hurt you inside of you as part of the vaccine. Attenuated. Um, Yes. So this means that after injection, the virus causes a harmless infection in the vaccinated person because, spoiler alert, if you get the vaccine, you are now vaccinated. Some people don't understand that. With um, very few to, if any, symptoms before they are eliminated from the body. The person's immune system fights the infection caused by the weakened virus and and immunity, which is the body's protection from the virus, develops. So what you have to understand is that there's two doses for the MMR vaccine. Um, One dose of the MMR vaccine is 93% effective against measles, 78% effective against mumps, and 97% effective against rubella. Two doses of the MMR vaccine jumps up those odds to 97% effective against measles and 88% effective against mumps. Um, Most children don't have any side effects from the shot. 
the side effects that do occur are usually very, very mild. And I think mild is a stretch, but it includes soreness, redness, swelling where the shot was given, fever, rash, temporary pain or stiffness in the joints or a loss of, loss of appetite. Now, there are some people who should shy away from getting the MMR vaccine, and it mostly boils down to anyone around or someone that has a family history of a uh, immune system that has been compromised. Also, pregnant women should not get the vaccine. The reason being is that you never want to put anything such as a live virus inside of your body while growing, as we have so elegantly put, a fuck ticket. So um, that's... <laughs> uh, the, receipt, wow. Josh. It's a um, fuck receipt. It's a fuck receipt. I blew it. Damn it. Um, so I, I do want to point out that the vaccine is safe and nowhere listed on uh, <laughs> by the CDC is that there is uh, autism. Um, also, that there is some of the immunization passed along from the mother to the child once it is born. That is a okay. key component in this as well. So, All right. So that's good. Now. Here we go with influenza. This one is interesting, and this is where I'm going to start digging in a little bit just to knock out some of the stuff that the uh, National Vaccine Information Center has mentioned. Influenza. This is the least surefire vaccine due to influenza having so many different strains. Uh, Like I said, they can grow the influenza vaccine in eggs and chicken eggs, and sometimes it doesn't always transfer. Sometimes the one that's massively distributed, usually for free. I've, I've got a flu vaccine recently. Uh, doesn't take. Uh, and there were several times recently within the past few years where they just picked the wrong strain they thought was going to cause an outbreak. And uh, it turns out the other one did and people ended up getting the flu anyway. That doesn't mean the influenza, influenza vaccine hurt anybody else. So um, there is a good analogy here that I want to put into this uh, where we all know a whole bunch of different models of cars. For these eggs, say that like you test this vaccine on a ferret, they were saying. Ferrets have only seen, say, a Honda Civic and a Ford F-250. They would know the difference between those two. We, Our immune system have seen so many different ones that sometimes you don't differentiate between cars. Um, and let's just say two different sedans or two different sports cars where they look very similar and you don't even know the year of them. It's just you got to be very, very specific about that. This is how this vaccine works. You have to really spot focus it. And once again, that's why it wouldn't work is because they didn't spot focus it. They accidentally picked a 93, uh, you know, Honda Civic instead of a 96 Honda Civic. The general issues that arise from getting the influenza vaccine are soreness, redness in the spot where you were injected in, headache, fever, nausea, and muscle aches. These are very short-lived, and after about three or four days, you're good. Let's talk about the situation of when things are not good. There is something called Jillian-Barr syndrome, which is a condition where the immune system causes nerve cell damage in response to a virus, and this occurs in 3,000 to 6,000 people in the U.S. every year, and not all of these are from vaccines specifically. So that's not a whole lot. We have about 330 to 340 or 50 million people in the entire United States. 3,000 to 6,000 is pretty good numbers, just saying. What, Mo- what was the uh, name of the syndrome again? Julian Barr syndrome. Or As Jillian- opposed to Roseanne Barr syndrome, where you have a certain reaction to Xanax? Oh, no. It was, uh, it, what was it? It was Ambien. That's what it was. <laughs> oh, yeah. damn it. Ambien. It I caused you it. to God. make um, very, very uh, 
compulsive Amazon purchases and racist tweets. Yeah, it puts it your full heart on display. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> Planet of the Apes and such. So anyway, uh, yeah, most fully recovered from this uh, condition, Julian Barre, I guess is how you would say it in French. Greg, back me up on that one. But <sighs> some can end up with permanent paralysis from this condition. So I'm not going to say it isn't a problem because it totally is. It's a problem for an extremely small amount of our population in the U.S. alone. And once again, we're going by the U.S. because we have had the easiest resources for the U.S. With the world, it makes the numbers even less. This is kind of a little bit of a situation why Julian Barr got brought up. In 2003, it was discovered that a 1976 swine flu vaccine in response to a pandemic was related to an increased risk of contracting Julian Barre syndrome. This risk was one in every 100,000 people that received the swine flu vaccine in 1976. Guys, I would probably still take the vaccine if that was the situation. Would you? Absolutely. Okay, just making sure. <laughs> just making sure we're on the same page. Because of all the things that I just listed earlier, car wreck, gunshot, and uh, what was the other one? Oh, poisoning? Yeah, that's uh, much less than one in 100,000. So, this means that an estimated 450 people out of the 45 million people in the U.S. that year that estimately got the vaccine caught Julian Barr syndrome. So once again, we're talking about just going with the odds. I know with this statistics episode, I'm taking these odds right now. Josh, let's go to the next one. No, real quick. I did want to bring something up, but I wanted you to finish. No, I'm um, done. This episode's uh, <laughs> over. <laughs> uh, Travis, Travis Frederick, um, who, who formerly played for the uh, Dallas Cowboys just recently retired um, he was an offensive lineman, and uh, he retired, though, because of Guillain-Barre syndrome. So, you know, it's huh. somebody has it that you've heard of, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, How many other but, people so have uh, retired because out. of Guillain-Barre syndrome? Just curious. Uh, I don't know. He's the first one that I know of, but I'm sure. Okay. I mean, it happens. Anyway. Uh, it does. So, uh, Vericella, or Vericella, sorry, Vericella is what I'm talking about. Cella, Sella, who knows? We'll find out. Somebody will yell at me on Twitter. Um, that's the next one that I'm covering. Who isn't yelling on Twitter? Uh, that's fair. Um, I want to yell on Twitter, but I'm not going to call it that. I'm going to call it chicken pox because that's what we all know it as. Um, and this is caused by the varicella, I lied, varicella zooster virus. And um, I should point out that there is a, a actually MMRV vaccine that has this in it. So you can get the MMR or the MMRV vaccine. Too many vaccines um, at once, dude. Uh, shut up. I'm getting to that later. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> two doses of the vaccine are about 90% effective at preventing chickenpox. When you get vaccinated, you protect yourself and others in the community. This is especially important for people who cannot get vaccinated, such as those with, an, with a weakened immune system or pregnant women. Some side effects include... Soreness, redness, swelling where the shot was given, fever, mild rash, temporary pain, and stiffness in the joints, a loss of appetite. Basically, everything you've heard for the MMR vaccine applies here. Same. Yep. So. Yep. All right. And lastly, we have in the regiment, hepatitis A vaccine. Do you want to know what it gives you? Sore arm, headache, tiredness, fever, loss of appetite, potentially. Uh, I'll take it over hepatitis. That's it. And I just want to, like, Get this section done with and saying, everybody that's listening, you probably have had all of these in you and have been fine and didn't even remember it. So 
Just throwing that out there. I know I had all these, so there you go. All right, here's where we get into child death. Yes, we are going to, I swear we're going to get through this and get into the better side of vaccines after this, but we are trying to do our due diligence right now and say the previous failings that vaccines have have displayed as we are trying to get this science perfected. Um, this is going to be a rough part, not going to lie. This is where I go back into narrative mode, but I think it's worth pointing out so that we are just being as, once again, transparent as possible. Starting off, here are some of the vaccine failures in the past. Smallpox vaccine. As we had mentioned before, most deaths from smallpox vaccine were due to infection from unsanitary administration practices. Most of the time, tetanus. Once again, RIP Jim the horse. If only we had found some sort of antimicrobial additive to stop these contaminations. Uh, oh, wait, hold up. We did. We did. We, we totally did. And <laughs> it, it got blamed for autism. Uh, so, moving on. As for the true associated <laughs> risk... As for the true associated risk with the smallpox vaccine, though the vaccine is no longer regularly in circulation... Past estimates were that one in a thousand receiving the vaccine experienced non-life-threatening symptoms like scars and swelling listed in the previous episode. It was a big, like, social thing that there's a reason why people didn't want to get it is because it put them out of work for a while. But these did not require medical attention. 14 to 52 people per 1 million developed actual serious reactions like encephalitis. One in two people out of every 1 million were estimated to die. This is still much, much, much better than the 30% mortality rate of natural smallpox. So one in every three that get smallpox from the non-vaccine will probably die. Josh, let's go with the next one. Yeah, so the next one um, we're going to talk about is the yellow fever vaccine, uh, which was actually contaminated with hepatitis B during World War II. And um, for those of you that don't know, yellow fever is a viral infection that causes fever headache, jaundice, muscle pain, nausea, vomiting, and fatigue. So the name of the yellow part of the yellow fever comes from the jaundice or the yellowing of the eyes and the skin that some people actually get. It is typically transmitted by mosquitoes and most common in Africa and South America. So you end up so looking like, something... uh, what, Elijah Wood from Sin City? Uh, kind of, sort of, yeah. <laughs> that's actually pretty apt. Um, but so that's not something that we really deal with here in America. It's it's not as big of a problem. Um, I'm not saying that's okay, but it's just, you know, you typically won't get um, a yellow fever vaccine unless you're traveling to that part of the world or traveling internationally. So, um, but back in, back in the day, like around the 1940s, we had this big, great war thing going on. And one of the requirements for all the soldiers was to get the yellow fever vaccine. And it seems like a pretty smart idea, right? So the problem was that the vaccine was that it, it was it was grown and suspended in human serum, which basically means that it was cultured to keep it alive, much like Ryan was talking about earlier. Um, that's why I laughed when you were talking about it, Ryan. And, and the problem with it is that we, we goofed big time because there was a massive, massive hepatitis outbreak during that time. And one of the major players of it was the yellow fever vaccine. And one of the things that we did not know, which hindsight is 2020, I get that. I don't know how nobody thought of this, but the human serum could transmit hepatitis from the donor to the vaccine recipient. So everyone that had it and was part of the vaccine then transferred it 
to the person obtaining, receiving the vaccine. So we didn't see this come. And then there was a huge mass legislation talking about there's, you know, they're not doing that anymore. They're not going to give out the or they're not going to keep it cultured or anything like that. Um, and there was a big uproar. And one of the things that people said was, you know, we didn't know, we didn't see it coming, yada, yada, yada. But the problem was, is there was literature dating back to 1885 that spoke about the transfer of hepatitis from vaccinations in men and also how hepatitis was transferred from one horse to another because of blood. And yep. it bit us that, in the ass. That'll happen, unfortunately. So, uh, moving back to smallpox for a quick bit, there was another vaccine incident involving the smallpox uh, vaccination that had nothing to do with the vaccination itself with the 1 in 1,000 deaths. In 1861, there was an outbreak that needed to be vaccinated for, and there were mass administration of vaccines, and 63 children did end up dying from these vaccines. However, it was not from natural smallpox or a contamination of that sort. It was syphilis that got into there. There were... Once again, terrible sanitary practices in administering these vaccines, which we have compensated for now, much to the effort of some people not wanting that to happen. And uh, yeah, syphilis ended up killing a, a whole bunch of children and then hospitalizing a whole lot more. So that actually did happen as well. Josh, next one. Okay, sorry. Then there was also something known as the Lubbock disaster of 1930 in North Germany. There were 73 deaths of newborns from receiving tuberculosis vaccine, also known as BCG. Once again, this was a contamination issue where they did not properly attenuate the virus. This wasn't intentionally poisoning the kids. It's just they were rushing to try to get these vaccines out, which I think we're going to talk about later. But yes, pretty much people caught tuberculosis because it was bad practice. We have gotten much better at this now and it shows in the numbers, which we will get to. Lastly, I mean, let's, well, let's be fair here. We used to, how we used to not wash our hands in between oh, surgeries, yeah. you know, no, the person that invented that, that concept got ostracized for saying you should wash your hands between surgeries. <laughs> yeah. I love the medical community sometimes. So the last one, the polio vaccine guys strap in. This was, in my opinion, the biggest credible hit to vaccines. In 1952, polio had reported 58,000 cases in the U.S. alone. In 1953, a scientist named Jonas Salk, funded by the Foundation for Infantile Paralysis and its well-known March of Dimes, which still goes on today, had announced he had developed a polio vaccine. Parents started lining up their children for the largest medical field trial in history, by the end of 1954, 1.8 million children across 40 states had been given the trial vaccine. Eyes were all on sulk. The Foundation for Infantile Paralysis had already actually committed another $9 million in old-timey dollars to buy 25 million more polio vaccines. They put a lot of money into this. The New York World... You're saying old-timey dollars? Yeah, because they didn't feel like doing the conversion. <laughs> no, it is. I just, I just really appreciate how offhanded that was. Sorry. I'm really trying to be good. I thought it would have slipped by, you know, but, you know. I had to point that up. <laughs> the New York World Telegram had preemptively put out a headline saying that the polio vaccine had a 100% success rate, which, by the way, was a scientific impossibility. Nonetheless, on April 12, 1955, with over 54,000 doctors watching a broadcast across the country, Professor Thomas Francis announced that the world's first polio vaccine was, quote, safe, effective, and potent. Fanfare spread across the nation. 
The Surgeon General had licensed six pharmaceutical companies to manufacture the vaccine that very afternoon of the announcement. Hope had shown its face finally. The only issue, though, was that Francis' statement was not true at all. The vaccine had a 10 to 40 percent estimate rate of ineffectiveness. To add to that, the incubation period. Go ahead. No, I just said, whoa, (laughs) that's a big variety, 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 whatever. Variation. There we go. I don't know. To add to that, the incubation for the vaccine and polio itself had left patients for open for a long time to still catch polio after being vaccinated. A massive recall of the vaccines was put out. Shortages of the vaccine began to cause panic. In response to this, the Eisenhower administration said, guys, get ready for this. No one could have seen the demand for a vaccine. Fuck me. It's it. (sighs) No one could have seen it. Blame was thrown everywhere. Here is a quote from the panic virus. Hopefully this won't sound familiar in a few months. Guys, this hurts. I believe in you. Partisan political jockeying didn't help matters. Democrats in Washington blamed any and all problems on President Dwight Eisenhower's incompetence, while Republicans spoke sotto voce of a mysterious Democrat-fueled black market that was siphoning off valuable supplies. (laughs) Please no, please no, please no. Guys, I I don't want to be forecasting. Um, Lastly... I went off of Mr. Bones' wild ride. (laughs) Lastly, due to all the rush to create, approve, and push out a largely untested vaccine, the Cutter incident happened. Cutter Pharmaceuticals had made a batch of polio vaccine that wasn't properly inactivated, meaning this thing was still pretty much alive. Therefore, injecting full-blown polio into kids. Hundreds were left paralyzed and or died. It turns out that a second lab, Wyeth Pharmaceuticals, also had rushed out a contaminated batch, but Alexander Langer of the uh, Epidemic Intelligence Service decided to cover this up and save the polio campaign. I don't know how to feel about this. Um, naturally, vaccination rates dropped after this. Today, a much, much safer polio vaccine and aggressive action by the World Health Organization has allowed the world to enjoy the low occurrence of only 22 cases of polio worldwide as of 2017. So, just to wrap up on that, Yeah, somebody fucked up. A lot of people fucked up. But right now, polio is pretty much not a thing. Uh, Iron lungs are pretty much a novelty in the modern world. Guys, that's the worst of everything that has happened with vaccines so far. Let's talk about the Andrew Wakefield study of 1998. Hero. Go fuck yourself. (laughs) Before we get too deep into it, let's talk about something called autism. So let's talk about autism or autism spectrum disorder or ASD. There's a lot of different names and acronyms for it. Autism is one of those things that is sort of morphed over time. It's not just because we include other conditions under the umbrella, which we do and remove some sometimes. And like in the case of ADHD, it oftentimes Venn diagrams with other diagnoses. But the diagnosis, again, ADHD, for instance, is not on the autism spectrum. So there's kind of this... It's not that it's not concrete. It's that at least in public discourse, there's a little bit of a malleability. But autism spectrum disorder or autism does have kind of a specific range of different cognitive uh, disorders under it. Autism usually means a few key elements. Namely, an individual has trouble with social interaction and exhibits very repetitive behavior. Again, it's not relegated to this, but those are two huge red flags for it. Uh, for example, a young child who regularly, 
a young child who regularly organizes toys and objects into rows or stacks them up neatly or sorts everything by color will probably get tested for autism as that's usually an early sign. I actually remember a great episode of Scrubs where Dr. Cox, an old friend of his, were very, very competitive and their kids were playing and Dr. Cox sees his son like compulsively stacking everything and the other guy literally doesn't want to believe it and thinks he's just being cruel, right? And uh, that was actually a very good episode that kind of talks about the early signs and early childhood development. So there was a, there was a guy I, I know, I was talking to him one day and um, he, he mentioned that he was worried about, you know, he's like, my son might have um, autism. I don't know though, we, we might go get him tested. And I said, what makes you think that? And his response was literally he takes his toys and he arranges them from smallest to biggest every time. Mm. He would do it for hours and hours on end. And, that repetitive um, he, side of it's definitely uh, concerning. Yep. And uh, so he actually got tested and he does have a low form of autism. He's high functioning, sure. but like a, a very low yeah. to mild form. Well, we're definitely going to get to that. So as they get older, they can often have declining social skills that are also not necessarily present at a younger age. Again, not necessarily, but that's very common. Uh, this isn't to say it's all gray area or if you're just a jerk, you have autism, but the initial diagnosis, especially because kids don't quote unquote, you know, communicate like we do as adults can be a bit of a process and have a little bit of an element of, I know it when I see it before formal testing is done. So, so far it's typically attributed to a number of genetic and environmental factors, i.e. nature and nurture in a way, uh, but not vaccines. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go ahead. We'll get to that. And another thing to talk about real quick is that uh, autism has been redefined in terms of its scope of what the symptoms are over the years to the point where it's been expanded since the 40s to the 60s to the 80s to now to be diagnosed sure. way more. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more as we go when it terms to the actual correlations of anybody in an anti-vax movement that would think that... Uh, you know, vaccines and autism, yeah. they're so uh, correlated together. But once again, correlation does not equal causation. Well, you see this a lot in um, social and crime statistics. So like a uh, great example was Sweden redefined what qualified as sexual assault. Uh, and basically all of a sudden people thought it was spiking, but really it's that they broaden the definition. And you see this a lot, especially in crime stats, where it's as things morph and change legally or by definition, the stats also change and then people suddenly think it's something of consequence. I'm assuming you mean that they added catcalling to it? <laughs> to the definition? <laughs> Not that dramatic, but, uh, but anyway, so, uh, so far, like I said, they're kind of attributed to nature and nurture in some ways. Uh, really, it's genetic and environmental factors. So an obvious one, drug and alcohol usage, uh, cocaine, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, right? All these different things. It, it, substance abuse can definitely be linked to autism. Uh, you also see studies linking exposure to environmental contaminants or pollution leading to higher autism rates. People who live near uh, coal-fired power plants or any sort of toxic or hmm. um, was one, yeah, just pollution in general. Flint, Michigan. Yep, yep. Uh, as well as exposure to lead and other harmful substances or materials, but for many, it's also just genetic. It's just uh, just genetic lottery. So basically, yeah, we have environmental aspects. For many, it's just simply genetic. 
But with that being said, the underlying causes and nature of autism are not fully understood, hence why we don't have a cure, quote unquote, right? And with some even arguing that it doesn't necessarily need to be cured, uh, so much as accepted and accommodated for. That aside, though, we do actually have many cases of people, quote unquote, recovering from it. That's kind of a tricky word. Uh, but the a study I found from 2008 claims that between 3 and 25%, yes, massive range, lose that quote, lose their ASD diagnosis and enter a normal range of cognitive, adaptive, and social skills. We can get all into what is considered normal. We can argue all that. But the point being that they, they kind of talk about how early diagnosis and treatment, relatively high intelligence. Josh, you said earlier, high functioning, right? Yep. Uh, possible mechanisms of recovery include normalizing input by forcing attention, enriching the environment, promoting reinforcement value of social stimuli, preventing interfering behaviors, mass practice of weak skills. There's all these ways that basically you can shore up their weaknesses. And a lot of it actually was interesting, revolved around building their self-confidence because that social skills aspect is often so critical that if you can kind of reduce their stress, build their social skills, and at least get them imitating at an early age with an early diagnosis, more quote unquote normal social behavior, it actually puts them out of the spectrum. It's very interesting. I, there's a lot more to it. I've got some links, but I didn't want to go too, too far off. But there's a, and, and again, I think. There's that whole question of should we be accommodating or is it a thing to cure? But I just found that fascinating. I really didn't know a whole lot about that, that you can kind of fall in or fall out of the spectrum. Yeah, it's still widely misunderstood. Yes, and that's the thing, like a big theme from the first one and this part of the show is that there there's no cure for autism that we know of and we're still really learning the underlying causes and what's even yeah. happening. Um, so... That's a good lead-in because we're able to eliminate something that we know probably does not cause autism. I'm just going to say that because of the null hypothesis. Let's get into Andrew Wakefield's study, the OG shitbag. All right, so an overview. On February 26, 1998, a press conference was held for a paper called Iliolymphoid Hyperplasia Nonspecific Colitis and Pervasive Developmental Disorder in Children. It was published in The Lancet, a very, very, very well-respected paper. However, since that title was not exactly a very, you know, paper headline-grabbing one, a 20-minute promotional video was made by Andrew Wakefield and his crew to hype up this press conference. Now, this study piggybacked <laughs> off of Wakefield's... Dis I'm, I'm sorry. When you, when you say a hype video, I just picture him coming up and going. <laughs> vaccinations, 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 vaccinations. Yeah, Kevin Hart was there and everything. <laughs> uh, no, Kevin Hart's not an anti-vaxxer, as far as I know. So the study piggied off of Wakefield's widely discredited previous study of finding measles virus in intestinal linings. This study combined previous uncorroborated findings with the also discredited concept of opioid excess and autism. And by opioid excess, they mean there's just a, a a whole bunch of chemicals inside of the intestinal lining that get through the blood-brain barrier that it overloads your brain. And it's not something that is widely accepted today. Since, according to Wakefield, the apparently present but not proven measles component of the MMR vaccine caused a quote-unquote leaky gut, opioids naturally produced during digestion permeate the blood-brain barrier and overwhelm the children's brains. Autism. Many such cases. Okay, so we're going to talk about first how this clinical trial went off. 
there's three different types of trials that you can do for a general study. And most of the time it falls into clinical trial, a case control study, and then simple case series. Clinical trial is you have a large population, it's randomized, and most of the time blinded. Therefore, the person that's even observing this doesn't know who is affected by this. So say the effect of um, sugar on 10-year-olds. You get a whole bunch of 10-year-olds that are given a shitload of sugar, and then you have a whole bunch of 10-year-olds that are given a shitload of uh, cornstarch as a control. The scientist that's observing it does not know who got what, and also the kids that are subjected to this don't know who got what. And then you look at the results from it and you're able to do a test hypothesis on one half and then another, and then the other half is untouched. It's like a placebo study, essentially. This is how a clinical trial works. You can't do this for a situation where you have a dangerous situation like a virus. You don't want to expose somebody. It's unethical. Then you have a case control study where you look at people that have previously been affected. And then you have a control study where you look at people that are not affected and you compare that. That's the second best that you can do. What the Wakefield study was something called a simple case series, which is just mainly, I saw something interesting and I'm commenting on it, and we can't really extrapolate much information from this. That's already a shot to what Wakefield did. Then in 2004, a journalist named Brian Deere came along and posted something in the Times London that wrecked Wakefield's career so terribly badly. Very badly. Badly, badly, badly. Now, the ethics of it were that five of the 12 children in Wakefield's study were funneled to him by a man named Richard Barr, who happened to be a class action lawyer attempting to sue vaccine manufacturers on behalf of the parents that the children were sent to him from. These children's parents were definitely his clients. So that's already a guy that said, hey, I'm trying to sue the vaccine industry. Can you do the study for me to give me more evidence that I can sue them? And Wakefield said, sure. None of this was disclosed. Josh, do you want to move on to the next little bit of this? Yeah, so um, I'm going to be talking about the children in particular. Um, like Ryan mentioned, there were 12 children in the study where Wakefield made the famous claim that there was a link between autism and the MMR vaccine. Um, eight of the 12 children's parents claimed that the, quote, behavioral symptoms began within two weeks of receiving the MMR vaccine. Uh, that is very key because this was later proved to be a bullshit. And um, I'm going to quote Wakefield here because this was uh, something he directly referenced in this study. Um, quote, if you, well, I, I'm not going to do it in a British accent and he's a shitbag, so I'm just going to read it like me. Um, quote, if you give three viruses together, three live viruses, then you potentially increase the risk of an adverse event occurring, particularly when one of those viruses influences the immune system in the way that measles does. End quote. We're going to break that down shortly. And um, you'll see the problems that arise with this statement. Um, so let's get into the ethics of this statement. Uh, I mean, of this of this study, because that is a huge jumping off point for this. Yeah. So pretty much uh, here are some of the things that Andrew did in the course of this study and his other studies. Um, number one, he didn't disclose how much he was paid, which I'm going to mention for sure. Uh, he also didn't mention another small little aspect of this study that happened before it, but we're going to talk about the invasive procedures. He, he had people perform colonoscopies on the children, which is not a fun thing to do, but it's multiple, uh, it's multiple deep dives into, well, children's uh, intestinal systems through, I guess you can guess which side of the digestive tract. This was not something that needed to happen. 
Not only that, let's go with a little anecdote. I know we don't like those here, but Andrew Wakefield said that he <laughs> he paid children at his son's birthday party to draw their blood. He said two children fainted and one threw up on his mom. He later retracted this. It was a quip, as he quotes. I'm going to do the British accent, okay? Let's go with Cockney. How about that? Sure. It was a quip. Just a story. The way these stories are told, if the audience responds, you tend to respond back. So the story was told, but it had no bearing on the truth at all. So he's already lying about how he did this study to an audience. I want you guys to think about how ethical it is to actually just draw blood from fucking kids at a birthday party. Like a party. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Well, it does sound like a party. Um, I want to mention that, like, if I went out and, like, let's say I saved 10 children from a burning building. And as I'm telling that story on the news, I say, well, you know, it started off as a pretty bad day. I woke up and I shit my pants. And then as I was changing, I saw a burning building with 10 children in it. I went and did it. I guarantee you somebody at somewhere is going to be like, hey, you heard Josh save those kids from the burning building. And the immediate response is going to be, dude, he shit himself that morning. Can you believe that? He went from shitting himself to changing, just saving kids from a burning building. Do you see how ridiculous that is? Next level. Yep, 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 yep. Definitely. Along with the ethics of how he decided to carry out these experiments, and um, I'm going to elaborate a little bit more on the flawedness of this study. So, Josh, do you want to talk about maybe some of the reasons why Wakefield may have wanted to give a positive answer that vaccines are associated with uh, gut inflammation and, uh, you know, autism? Yeah, so there's this um, Brian Deere guy, which you briefly mentioned, uh, before Ryan, and he was a reporter for the Sunday Times. And he reported that some of the parents of the 12 children in the Wakefield study were recruited via a UK lawyer preparing a lawsuit against MMR manufacturers. Um, also, the Royal Free Hospital, which is where Wakefield worked, had received a $55,000 pound, or 55,000 pound. 55,000 pounds. There we go. Um, oh, yeah. That translates to about a thousand, $100,000 for the record. Um, so. It was from the UK's legal aid board. Um, I'm all thrown off working, going from dollars to pounds. Uh, so what you got to see is in October of 2003, the board had cut off public funding for litigation against MMR manufacturers. And following an investigation of these allegations in the paper by the UK General Medical Council, Wakefield was charged with uh, serious professional misconduct, including dishonesty uh, and a bunch of other things. But, you know, you never want a fucking dishonest doctor. I don't think that anybody's going to argue that. So, but I mean, like that should be the end of it, right? But unfortunately, it's not. And it gets worse. See, in, in December 2006, Deer, again, writing in the Sunday Times, further reported that in addition to the money they gave the Royal Free Hospital, the lawyers responsible for the MMR lawsuit had paid Wakefield personally more than 400,000 pounds, which he had not previously disclosed. So, no. so they are just throwing fucking money left and right at Wakefield, hoping that um, whatever he finds is going to be in their favor. And I don't know about you. But if I'm trying to find something out and somebody pays me a fuck ton of money, I'm going to tend to think about those people and their best interest when I'm finding out that answer. Oh, yeah. No, no financial incentive at all. But let's talk about maybe another little stack thing that Wakefield may have been skewing the results of this study for. 
Would you like to talk about that, Josh? Yeah. Um, before we get into it, I want to say that to me, this is the most egregious part of it. Not the, not the getting paid off for um, helping these lawyers. I mean, that's a pretty shitty thing to do. Don't get me wrong. And it should have him immediately removed from all medical vicinities and across the world. But to me... Which, spoiler, he was. Yeah, he absolutely <laughs> was. Um, I, I think that this is the worst part about all of this, of how... Oh, how, yeah. And, and, it's, and it's amazing because you see that when he does something like this, like taking all this money, you're like, oh, well, this dude's just a dirtbag. He's getting paid off. But now when you hear this, you're like, oh, no, he's a really big piece of shit because he's profiting off of this, not only by these lawyers, but for himself. And here comes the crowning achievement of Andrew Wakefield. The British Medical Journal had found that Wakefield had filed a patent for a measles vaccine to replace MMR. We had mentioned this last episode, but here are the details. This patent was filed over six months before Wakefield published his paper in The Lancet. Convenient. When asked about this, Wakefield said that the BMJ mischaracterized it. He said that it wasn't exactly a vaccine, but more of an over-the-counter dietary supplement to help boost the immune system. Now let's read the actual patent filing that is listed in the show notes, because it is in the plain copy scans. It is damning. Quote, this is from the first line of the patent, pretty much. The present invention, it re- the present invention relates to a new vaccine for the elimination of MMR and measles virus to a pharmaceutical or therapeutic composition for the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease. He was filing for both. In, I went through this patent. He was going for both either a vaccine to get rid of MMR that was in the gut, not measles virus, MMR virus in there specifically, and then actual measles. And also he was trying to do different patents. Like he was doing a widespread, he was doing a shotgun spray at this where you're talking about, yeah, maybe there's also like an oral supplement that you take over time and everything that'll boost the immune system and protect you from, you know, measles in your stomach lining. He was going for fucking both in there. He's a fucking liar that said, oh no, it wasn't a vaccine. Even though the first line mentions a vaccine, I got livid when I read this, him just trying to just. He was a cat trying to cover his shit on a marble floor. It was, oh my God, fuck this guy so badly. He's throwing, he, he's throwing shit at a wall to see what's there. Yeah, not only that, um, can I say that uh, this study that he did was not reproducible ever? Oh, because it's so much bullshit. So. Yeah, there were several attempts to reproduce this and it didn't happen once. To go ahead and piggyback onto that a little bit. There was something called the Michelle Cedillo case, which we might talk about a little bit more, where uh, in the 2000s, there was an omnibus case like hearing to try to give payoffs from the vaccine court that we had mentioned in the previous episode to figure out um, if some people had uh, a right to be compensated for a vaccine injury. And Michelle Cedillo was a big issue. She was one of the star players in this. And once again, the family, they were just misled. I am not trying to harp on the family too badly. They just had so many bad influences on them. Anyway, this omnibus hearing uh, was on autism and vaccines. And one of the star witnesses was a man named Nicholas Chadwick, who had worked in Wakefield's lab during this case, uh, during the actual study in 1998. And he testified that he had notified Wakefield several times that he was not able to find measles virus in the intestines of all 12 children in the famous Lancet study. Not only that, 
when there were positives, they were found to be contaminated by positive control oh samples. It's all disregard for any ethics and for human life at the expense of him being right. I, uh, you know what? I don't want to get sued, but I would not be surprised if it turned out that Andrew Wakefield intentionally contaminated those samples with a positive. Oh, I don't think it would surprise so, anyone. Now, Josh, how did Wakefield turn out from this? Did he got a lot of fame? He's still directing movies or writing for movies and shit. <laughs> um, so, but is he still a practicing doctor of any sort? Uh, no, he's not. Spoiler alert. Um, so he resigned in two thousand one. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm putting quotes here by mutual agreement and was made a fellow of the Royal College of Pathologists. Um, and he then moved to the U.S. 2001, which basically was about a month before he saw the writing of the wall and knew that he was going to get, you know, shit on all over. So he just got out of there. And um, he, that's when he moved to, around the Austin, Texas area. Um, he was reportedly asked to leave the Royal Free Hospital after refusing a request to validate his 1998 Lancet paper with a controlled study. Wakefield then had his medical license revoked when they found his research was skewed and acted in bad faith. He was barred from practicing medicine in the United Kingdom and now living in the United States is not licensed in the United States. Despite all of this, he continues to make money and appearances in prominent anti-vax forms today and still talks about his experiences saying things like, and if you hated him now, I want you to really listen to what he's saying. Quote, the reemergence of measles is not the consequence of a hypothesis. We did not cause a scare. We responded to parents' legitimate concerns. They were uncertain about the vaccine. We responded to that. And as we should have done and did in a professional and ethical manner, not to have done so would have been negligent. Go fuck yourself, Andrew fuck Wakefield. You. Oh my God, yes, ethical by just drawing children's blood at parties, shoving tubes up kids' asses to test them unnecessarily, uh, go ahead and trying to file a patent just so you can get more money out of it, and also just skewing an entire case that led to an entire outbreak of measles on several occasions. Yeah, he moved to America, went to Austin, Texas, and then guess what happened? Measles uh, cases just shot up. This guy is a plague in himself. Uh, How can you sit there and criticize and talk about ethics, professionalism, and negligence when all of that is just the, the balls that you're juggling constantly? It, it is absolutely mind-blowing. So that's it for Andrew Wakefield, really, because um, we're going to move on to the more recent issues and the injuries associated in the current day. Okay, now that we've kind of just put a bookmark on Andrew Wakefield, he's kind of left the picture in the sense that the theories that he posited are generally discredited. He still is in the scene. Yeah, dumb, dumb discredited. <laughs> he's still in the scene. If you really want to see him posturing, go ahead and watch his Anderson Cooper interview. It's awesome watching him like just slither away. But we're going to talk about another thing that we brought up in the last episode, and that is thimerosal. It is the goalpost that people have moved on to after the whole measles in the gut was disproven pretty much across the board. Josh, do you want to tell us a little bit about thimerosal and its involvement with it causing autism? Absolutely. So thimerosal is a mercury-containing organic compound. Since the 1930s, it's been widely used as a preser preservative, excuse me, and a number of biological and drug products, including 
vaccines. And that is to help prevent potentially life-threatening contamination with harmful microbes. Basically there to make sure that everything stays in order and nothing else harms you inside the vaccine. Dimerosol is not contained in live virus vaccines, such as MMR, which is a big distinction to make because one of the big jumping off points for anti-vaxxers is they point to thimerosal and they also point to MMR, but they're, I mean, they're wrong, first off, but they're even more wrong because there is no thimerosal inside the MMR vaccine. Not anymore. Um, not anymore, right. So where does this relate to vaccines? Well, in 1997, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration Modernization Act mandated identification and quantification of mercury in all food and drugs. Two years later, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration found that children might be receiving as much as 187.5 micrograms of mercury within the first six months of life. Despite the absence of data suggesting harm from quantities of mercury contained in vaccines, in 1999, the American Academy of Pediatrics and Public Health Service, that's a mouthful, recommended the immediate removal of mercury from all vaccines given to young infants. So this was a precautionary measure, not because there was a problem. So they did it to appease people so they wouldn't be worried. And little did the medical community know that this would be used against them. And it's it's really kind of frustrating I mean, all of this is frustrating, but it's, it's very frustrating because they're doing something proactive to ease the minds of people and make sure that, you know, they're not going to be worried about their kid getting too much mercury. And instead, it's been used against him. What turned into an act of good faith turned into an ad admission of guilt in the eyes of the anti-vax movement. But there are some problems with the idea that thimerosal and mercury cause autism. See, the the signs and symptoms of autism are clearly distinct from those of mercury poisoning. Concerns about mercury as a cause of autism were similar to those with the MMR vaccine, just biologically implausible. Children with mercury poisoning show like characteristic motor, speech, sen sensory, visual, uh, psychiatric, and head circumference changes that are either fundamentally different from those or absent with children and autism. Consistent with this, there was a study performed by scientists at the CDC for years that later showed mercury and vaccines did not cause even subtle signs or symptoms of mercury poisoning. And there was this question that we brought up about Wakefield and thimerosal. And as far as I can tell, Wakefield does not support the thimerosal and mercury harming children theory, but I also cannot in good conscience stand on that hill because that dude has changed his story so many goddamn times that I can't keep track of what he believes it or don't. Struck me, it always struck me as that kind of like tacit approval thing. Like he doesn't have to say it because everyone else is saying it for him. And by not saying it's not the case, he's complicit, but you he can still technically well, say it. Well, there are evidentiary right. goalposts that they're trying to move or just like there's different camps. And that's the weird thing to think about with the anti-vax movement is some will say, oh, it is, you know, thimerosal. Or some people will say, no, it is the latent measles virus inside of the gut. Those aren't the same thing. And that's why they were saying like Wakefield saying you need to spread out the vaccines. A, because he had a patent for a single measles vaccine and he just wanted to make sure that his was the one that got picked up on. But it's two different situations, but they are both ever-present in the entire uh, zeitgeist of the anti-vax movement. And Josh, to, uh, did you read anything about the Minimata incident? I did not. So I had to do a, a write-up 
in my engineering ethics class uh, a couple years ago. And I did it on something called the Minamata incident, which is a uh, region in Japan where a company continuously kept pouring a lot, a lot, a lot of chemicals into the river and covering it up. And people started getting something called Minamata disease. The main component of this was something called methylmercury. And it was giving all these neurological damages to kids that you just mentioned. Like, you know, the head shape was changing, the motor function skills. There was a whole thing of cats. It was called dancing cat syndrome for a little bit because the cats that were like eating the fish out of the river. And this was a heavily um, seafood based uh, like area. They started like dancing because they had motor skill problems or quote unquote dancing and then dying horribly. The thing about this is that, A, once again, autism rates didn't go up or down from there. It just kind of went steadily at the pace that everywhere else went. B, it was methylmercury. Thimerosal is something called ethylmercury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. And just for a reference for anybody that's wondering, we've talked about methanol before, especially in our bootlegging episode. Methanol can kill you. Ethanol can also kill you if you drink way, 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 way too much of it. Um, methanol can blind you. Ethanol will get you bust. And then ethyl mercury, you can put in vaccines. Methyl mercury, not so much. Sorry, Josh. I just need to get that tangent, you know, tied up. Continue. No, it's fine, dude. You're, you're good. Uh, and that is a good distinction to make. I, I, I should have, uh, mentioned that it is, uh, what, what did you call it? Methyl mercury. So thimerosal yeah. is ethyl mercury. All the data that any of the scientists over at the FDA had was on methyl mercury specifically. They didn't have anything on yeah. ethyl mercury. So everybody was saying just mercury. It's not the same thing. Chemicals don't work that way. Um, and I'm sure you have the numbers of how much mercury, like mercury somebody gets in their daily life is more than vaccines. Oh, it's way more. Um, I have that somewhere. I think I'm going to get to that. So, but now... I want to move on to Mark Geyer and okay. this, um, this person is, he honestly should have had his own spot in part one because he is, um, I, I really don't know how to put this in any other way than infuriating any total piece of shit. So, um, but I'm going to keep it kind of short here. I'm not going to do a whole deep dive on it. But from from zero to I, one Wakefields, how many Wakefields is he? Is he 0. 0.6, oh, he, 0. 0.7, sure. what? Uh, he's he's probably a full Wakefield, in my opinion. He's okay. a piece of... <laughs> full he's Wakefield. He's a guard so hero. Episode name, Full Wakefield. Full Wakefield. Uh, so Mark... Can that be a new scale we use from now on? I'm just like... So instead of just saying such a piece of shit, because that was always kind of, you know... Not arbitrary, but it doesn't have a good scale or gradient. Can we start measuring everything in zero to one point yes, zero? Yes, I would fields? love that. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, yes, I'm totally down with this. He's ten Wakefields. So Mark Mark Geyer, <laughs> Mark Geyer is a former emphasis on the former here American physician who is known for testifying in medical cases around vaccines causing autism. And before we get any further, I should note that he has had his medical license revoked in every state he was certified over concerns about his autism treatments and his misrepresentation of his credentials to the Maryland Board of Health, where he falsely claimed to be a board certified geneticist and epidemiologist. He started doing these treatments for, for children that had autism, and one of the things that he, he used was Lupron. 
and I believe I'm saying that right, Ryan, correct? I, I think so, yeah. I didn't look too hard into that. Yeah, it's, it's Lupron, I'm pretty sure. And that is a drug that is essentially a chemical castration. It has been given to convicted sex offenders before. Um, so that tells you what kind of drug we're dealing with. I'm, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But basically, Geyer decided that the perfect use for that was to treat children for autism. See, and the reason being was Geyer and his son, who he also raised another piece of shit because he was holding his hand this whole way. They set up clinics all throughout the United States where they were offering treatments costing up to $6,000 per month to treat the testosterone levels in autistic children. They believe that autism is caused by high testosterone levels, and there is absolutely, positively, zero science to back this up. The other drug or scientific method in Mark Geyer's eyes that he used was chelations, and I believe I'm saying that correctly. It's I chelations. don't know, that's a big word. It's uh, chelations. Chelating, yeah. Okay, so chelating, chelation, that word is therapy that is basically removing heavy metals within the body. I'm sure you can all see where this is going. And and it, this one's pretty quick, but it essentially falls in line with Lupron as they were marketed together with Geyer as a cure for autism. See, the, the treatment Geyer and his son championed is, is based off of X-ray crystallography, which determines the atomic and molecular structure of a crystal. And... It's not really used today, um, from what I understand, except in very specific medical treatments. And they decided, again, this was a great idea to use on autistic children. Um, and see, uh, this is not a natural physiology that occurs in humans and has no basis to be done on people, really, again, except in very specific medical situations, much less children. Um, and my last note here says that they are both complete pieces of shit. See, the thing about chelations is with removing of the metals, one of the things that anti-vaxxers point to, and it's I'm glad I actually covered this because I know of a couple people who firmly believe this, that one of the reasons that their child has autism is the high, high levels of aluminum inside of them and they went to and i don't know if it was this guy but i'm sure it's somebody but it was some doctor and i'm putting doctor in air quotes that was undergoing these treatments with their children their child they're removing all the high aluminum and zinc levels in their system because that is what is causing their autism and this guy is a special special piece of shit because he is just grossly overcharging these people to do these bullshit homeopathic remedies that have no effect on the child and they're laughing all the fucking way to the bank they are doing nothing but harming other people with as far as their hopes their aspirations and trying to make sure their child is quote normal which i'm sure we'll get to they're making money and grifting and taking advantage of these poor people and it's just so fucking infuriating all right so yeah uh chemically castrate the kids so they, they become less autistic that sounds really 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 uh ethical you know it's whatever uh, so moving on, Boyd Haley is another doctor who you, I think we're looking for the name of, Josh, is the one that was trying to sell a chelator known as BDH2, although he labeled it as OSR number one to remove mercury from the body and therefore unautism you. This is not how things work. Just how you, I'm trying to think of a good way to uh, deal with this. So you say you have like arthritis and you know there's things that can take off calcium in the body. You, you, 
you can get a calcium buildup off of your sink by putting CLR on it. If you drink CLR, you're not going to have less calcium in your body. You're probably going to be dead. So just to kind of hone in on that, the way interactions work in a biological system are not the same thing. Boyd Haley in 2010 was told by the FDA that he absolutely needs to stop selling this as an autism cure or period because it's an industrial chelator. These people don't give a fuck about who they're selling to. They just want to sell. And it's even worse if they actually do really stand by their their points because I've gone back and forth on Wakefield actually believing in what he's saying. But I think it's more that he's dug himself so deep that he has to keep going with it instead of apologize. Um, I'm not here to talk about what the inside of Wakefield is saying, but that's just my feeling on it is that he's gone too far and he may as well just, you know, reap in on the fame because nobody's really pushing back at him to a point where he's being ostracized by enough people to stop doing it. Um, going on from this, let's talk about the actual sociological aspect of autism. Greg, I know you focused on this a little bit, but there's a couple of things that the anti-vax movement is refusing to actually acknowledge. And that is the complete, uh, understanding of how autism works in terms of us. Like there were different DSMs that have qualified autism as these different type of criteria that we've mentioned. And because of that, there's been more testing and there's a chart that I found that says a frightening trend. And this is actually correct numbers, but if you guys are familiar with it back in 1975, one in 5,000 children had autistic qualities in 1985, one in 2,500, 1995, one in 500. Uh, let's see. 2005 was one in 166 up to today. Roughly is one in 68 is the most recent numbers. And then this chart, from this anti-vax website keeps going up past the actual graph and there's a question mark afterwards and they're putting it exponential. And if I was new to this topic, that, that I mean, one in trend or not, one in 68 sounds very high. Like I can see why people would be like, Whoa, but also considering know? the fact that there could be people with, you know, slight scoliosis or medium scoliosis like myself and then severe scoliosis. Those all go into scoliosis. But if you look at a chart of how many people have it, that could be a lot more alarming when really your back's just bending a degree or two. That's how it is for autism. Yes, there are severe cases. Yes, there are people that cannot function by themselves without the help of others because of their autism. On the other hand, there are people that didn't even know they had what is considered to be autism until they go to some sort of psychologist. It's not a life ending or even life hindering situation. It's just something that you can adjust to in most cases. And there's a severe lack of understanding to that where autism is not. That's why that one in one in less than a hundred number is there. It's because it's not always a big deal. And it's like a lot of people would rather their kid get measles or get whooping cough and potentially die. than, God forbid have this, slight neurological um non-normality you know it's it's upsetting one one of the things that i'll say is so we we grew up in a time where autism didn't have the the focus that it does now like it didn't have the the data or the science like there it was there um i knew people that were diagnosed with autism when i was a kid but they're we're still understanding it and we've come a long way in a short amount of time but I would venture to to gather that if you took a pool of everybody that the three of us know collectively, I guarantee you 
that if they would have d- done these tests when we were kids, that a handful of us would have came back with autism. Yeah. At least to some extent. Yeah. And also, I mean, once again, once thimerosal was taken out of vaccines, autism still kept rising up, kept shooting up. So that correlation is not, it's negative at that point. And then we also have the idea that, Josh, I think you have a nice little statistic to mention about the association between the two. But really quick, I want to say thank you very much to Curtis, a listener that emailed us, and he gave us a great email. It really does hone in on the actual, not even sciencey part of it. It's the understanding and how our society works. Josh, I think you have a little point first before we get into that. Yeah, so I'm going to be talking about the movie Rain Man. And this was really fascinating because this is a purely like sociological question and just but I think it's worth talking about. And it's you have to ask the question, was the movie Rain Man good or bad for autism? And the the thing about the movie is at its core, it's not about autism. The the movie's about two brothers who come together after being estranged and and there is that redemption arc. You know, at the end, it's it's a really good movie. I highly recommend you checking it out. Um, but the the word autism or autistic uh, is not in the film as far as I can even remember. I mean, it's been a little bit since I've watched it, but I don't ever remember those words specifically being used. And one of the things that m- many inside the, the community who are involved with either autistic children or treating autistic patients that they say is that it's done good because it's removed the stigma of autism as a completely negative trait. You know, there are some savants like in rain man, even though that is extremely, extremely rare. Um, it, it rings the, the bell of the old saying though, that like no press is bad press kind of thing. But um, others believe that the movie is more of the Apu of the autism community, which I thought was a really interesting way of putting That's it. That's an but it apt makes comparison. Sense. I'd say. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's not malicious in its betrayal, but it's still a stereotype and it's bad representation. Um, and I I tried to find uh, if there was some correlation in numbers in the rise of autism, uh, due to the movie, but it it really it wasn't there. As we mentioned in the first part of the of the uh, series, the rise in autism had more to do with the the growth of knowledge and data of of diagnosis and understanding um what autism is. And, and we just weren't there in 1980, 1988, excuse me. We just didn't have enough information. But I, I want to ask both of you this question. Like, do you think that this portrayal in the movie, not that the way Dustin Hoffman portrayed Rain Man, but just the way autism was portrayed in the film, like, what, is that a negative or positive thing? I think that it is. I think it was positive because what ultimately happened is I imagine some people were more aware of the condition in general. And probably got their kid tested for it, which is a good thing. You need to have that information to really explain why some of these things happen. I don't, uh, yeah, sure, it was the Apu portrayal, but at the same rate, it was raising awareness. Um, It would be a pretty non-starter movie if it was just a guy that had autism and was just slightly shy in public, and that's how he expressed it, or liked to organize things better. It's not... I think you needed a medium degree effect of it in order for people to be um, okay with it. And like I said, I'm not directly involved in the community of people that have been affected by autism. 
So maybe I'm being a little bit more callous, but I don't think it was a bad thing. I think it was a good thing that it raised awareness, regardless of the other side of it, where anti-vaxxers started saying, oh, yep, autism and vaccines. Greg, I'd, I'd love to know your thoughts, bud. I've never seen Rain Man. Oh, you motherfucker. <laughs> well, there goes that. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I'll just chime in then. Um, I So my niece has a cousin that um, is autistic and she is wonderful to my niece and like they get along great. And like, so it's not directly in my like circle, but it, it's still a part of my, my family. And when I look at the look at that and then I think back to the movie Rain Man, I, I kind of tend to fall in line with with Ryan's thinking. I think that that having the information is good and bringing light to that, like and not everybody is going to be the savant like Rain Man, right? Like that is extremely, extremely rare. But I think at least putting the information out there and making people aware that people exist that have that have autism um, because I would imagine that when that movie came out, that was, that was probably a bunch of people's first exposure to autism. Um, and, you know, I think that that in itself would be a positive thing. Um, I also, I should say that we weren't around back then. That was before all of us were born, but so we don't really know like the mm-hmm. negative, like if there was a negative sociological effect on it, but you know, looking back on it now, you know, 30 plus years later, uh, I think that it tends to be a a positive thing in the sense just just because it, it like Ryan said, it brought forth awareness to to autism. Well, also, like I said, uh, the listener Curtis said once again, thank you so much, Curtis, for giving us this email. It was great and well written. He wanted to point out he, he's a, he works in the healthcare industry or social working. He isn't uh, a doctor, but he works with uh, autistic people and their families. And he wanted to point out that not only did Rain Man have an effect on the view of autism, he wanted to point out the fact that also something I never considered. Guys, how often have you seen an autistic woman portrayed in anything? Huh. It's, um, be- it's because... I th- Go ahead. I think... I, I Okay, so it's been a while since I've seen it, but I want to say The Other Sister starring Giovanni Ribisi and Juliette Lewis. Oh, there is that. Okay. So, That's but the once only again, one I can think of. that is the Apu level syndrome that we're talking about, where they are, it's very, very kind of high level autism. Yes. Or rather, uh, lower functioning, higher level of severity. Yes. Curtis want to point out that it shows that a lot of women are bypassing their diagnosis of autism because girls are more uh, expected to act up in a dramatic way. So therefore, it's just seen as girls huh. being girls. A very strange turn of events, but that's why it gets overlooked for them having autism. I had not considered that. And there's a giant uh, gap in diagnoses for them because of that factor. Because I always do think of just like, honestly, a male with autism. Usually they, yeah, too. when they, you know, the insults thrown out on like online or something, calling someone autistic, usually they're just saying that towards like a dude or something that's uh, acting up in some way. And they're just saying he's going, you know, tons of slurs about it. But I just wanted to point that out. It's just like there is still some things that we have to overcome in order to understand the diagnoses, because even the medical field has its own biases that are still crippling the way that we are able to approach this. Um, So I think autism, we can go ahead and put a little bow on. 
what I want to continue with is talking about the vaccine injury table and also what the National Vaccine Information Center says can cause what vaccines can cause. And it turns out they have the same list. But before we get into that, I want to say that the when this whole injury, this vaccine court happened, there were a lot of hearings between anti-vax scientists like Wakefield and Mark Geyer, who did do testimonials, and uh, Gordon Stewart, who did testimonials as well. Why they seem to have been so steadfast, sure, and everything when they couldn't get a single actual scientist like Paul Offit or such to say concretely, vaccines do not cause autism. And the reason for that is that in the scientific community, there is something called the null hypothesis, where it is Im- almost impossible to prove a negative, just like the whole thing of like, there is no God. You can't prove that type of negative. I'm going to use an example of saying how the null hypothesis works. Let's say Greg killed Jeffrey Epstein. (laughs) You can prove that by getting a whole bunch of evidence. And once you have that steadfast evidence right there, you can prove that Greg killed Jeffrey Epstein if you find that tape. What you can't say is Greg did not kill Jeffrey Epstein. Because no matter how often we have not seen yet that Greg did not kill Jeffrey Epstein in that cell, say they find some CCTV footage and he's there, like he could have all the alibis he wants, but if they have that CCTV footage and they know it's not a deep fake and it's just him just like breaking that hyoid bone right in Epstein's neck, then we know that Greg now killed Jeffrey Epstein. There is always that chance that you can go ahead and disprove it. You have to start with the negative. That's the one that you can start with. And saying that vaccines do not cause autism is bad because that is putting an end to it. There's always evidence that could come up to prove otherwise. There can be evidence. Please direct all Epstein allegations at Ryan. (laughs) I might be posturing, but you know, Uh, but yeah, you can just say like the sun does not exist and you can easily prove. Yes, it does exist. I am currently being sunburned right now saying it. You see what I'm saying with the null hypothesis? It's really hard to prove a negative because there's always evidence that can come up and end that. That's why a lot of things are theories. The theory of relativity is just a theory that can be disproven if enough substantive evidence comes up. So that's why these scientists don't look like they have these gotcha moments in the middle of a vaccine court or any of these testimonials. They buy... We should do a Patreon on common philosophical like um, tropes, not tropes, but... Um... Oh, what about, why am I blanking on the Tenants, term? What are they axioms, called? Uh, yeah, logical, logical fallacies. fallacies. Yeah. Logical fallacies. Like uh, we could go over like Pascal's wager and stuff like that. You made me think of that with the whole God, not yeah. God thing. That'd be fun. I would love to do that. Anyway, I just wanted to get that out right there is that scientists are pretty much obligated in good faith not to say something indefinite like that, like vaccines do not cause autism. They can say there is no evidence supporting that vaccines cause autism. That's the closest they can get to it. And we're not scientists right now in the uh, capacity that we're acting at this show. So we may have said some definites like that, but we're not on file right now. Like We're not in court right now doing this. So I just wanted to clear that up. Um, not yet. Yeah. Oh, God, please don't sue us. So now we're going to go ahead and go with the both the national, uh, the the vaccine court's list of table injuries that people can file for if their kid was, you know, injured by a vaccine. And also the same thing that the National Vaccine Information Center said. Now, this table is kind of fast and loose, and I'm going to list all the things that are on it because they're pretty much the same list. We have, and we're going to go by them one by one really quick. Uh, some of them a little bit longer than others. Brain inflammation slash acute encephalopathy. That's just 
big brain, big head uh, damage, uh, chronic nervous system dysfunction, anaphylaxis, febrile seizures, Julian Barr syndrome, brachial neuritis, acute and chronic arthritis, thrombo... Mm, this one's on. I can't do that well. Uh, thrombocytopenia. I think that's it. Uh, smallpox, polio, measles, and, var and varicella zoster vaccine strain infection. We've gone over that. Death just straight up from the smallpox, polio, measles vaccine. Shock in unusual shock-like state. Protracted inconsolable crying. Syncope. And then this one's kind of new. Failure to roll over. Shall we start? Yes. Okay. Getting started. First injury is going to be brain inflammation and acute encephalopathy. Get ready for some science jargon. We're about to jump into this, but it doesn't have to be too deep. So this fear is stemmed from febrile seizures. So this is kind of knocking out two in one. This uh, is stemmed from febrile seizures immediately after and between vaccinations. So febrile seizures are those associated with a fever. So you get a fever, you start shaking. As we have mentioned before, some vaccines can cause a small fever. And if someone is prone to febrile seizures, this can cause one. So if you get a little fever, you can go into a seizure. This is not epilepsy by the books but it is a symptom of epilepsy, which also includes non-febrile seizures being ones not associated with a fever. From a 2001 study, the number of febrile seizures attributable to administration of DTP and MMR vaccines was estimated to be 6 to 9 and 25 to 34% per 100,000 children. So DTP, 6 to 9 per 100,000 children. MMR, 25 to 34 per 100,000 children because it gives you a slight fever. And then you can possibly get a seizure if you are prone to that. Now, compare with other children with febrile seizures that were not associated with vaccination. The children who had febrile seizures after vaccination were not found to be at higher risk for subsequent seizures or neurodevelopmental disabilities. It was a one-time thing from that vaccine-caused fever. Do you guys think that that's a terrible thing? That you, At least if you're aware of it, especially if it's that low out of 100,000, you can take the risk for it, especially if it makes your child immune to terrible diseases. Yeah? I agree. Yes. Yep. Um, now, going on from that, there were some conclusions from a study that I read that said there are significantly elevated risks of febrile seizures on the day of receipt from DTP vaccine and 18 to 14 days after the receipt of the MMR vaccine. But these risks do not appear to be associated with any long-term adverse consequences. And that's one of the studies that a lot of anti-vaxxers go towards to show that, yes, these things do happen. But it, they didn't tie it up well enough. Um, another study concerning encephalitis itself said, The initial clues to unraveling the etiology of vaccine encephalopathy lay in its clinical similarity to severe myoclonic epilepsy of infancy. That is an actual disease called SMEI, also known as Dravet syndrome. In this disorder, seizures present at approximately six months of age, usually uh, hemoclonic or generalized status epilepticus, I'm messing these up so bad, often associated with fever. <laughs> Children remain neurologically normal until the second year of life, whereupon they frequently experience developmental regression. Other seizure types then appear, including myoclonic partial absence seizures, and then the epilepsy is usually refractory to treatment. What they're saying is that this happens for these people. It's not vaccine associated. It's just around the time that you're getting vaccines, these things, this syndrome starts to appear. So there can be an easy correlation to it where people will say those two things are connected. 
There was also a study of 14 patients with alleged vaccine encephalopathy who had an onset seizure within 72 hours of vaccination. They found that 11 of 14 patients had mutations in the SCNIA gene, with the majority of these mutations having arisen spontaneously. Thus, despite these patients previously being labeled as having vaccine encephalopathy, the majority of patients studied had a clear genetic cause for their disease. So this is just a lot of things that start to show around the same time you're getting your vaccine regimen. All right, so long story short, encephalopathy can come from a lot of things, but it's you. It's not vaccines. It just happens at the same time you're getting vaccines, and sometimes it's the unfortunate time in the spontaneous region where you get a vaccine, and then these conditions start to show. It doesn't mean they're associated at all. Moving on. Josh, what do you have? Okay, so I am... Uh, this one is kind of weird. Uh, the next one they have listed is chronic nervous system dysf- dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Here's the Here's the problem with that. That is a, a very all-encompassing statement. Um, and so, like, so what are some disorders of the nervous system? Well, trauma, infections, degeneration, tumors, blood flow disruption, autoimmune disorders. Like, th- this is a, a wide variety hat. This is like the Abe Lincoln hat of hats. There's a lot that can go in there. Um so disorders of the nervous system may involve like strokes, like a transient ischemic attack, uh, a subchorionic hemorrhage, a subdural hemorrhage, a hematoma, um, infections like meningitis, encephalopathies, uh, polio, polio, epidural abscess. And then there's like structural disorders like brain or spinal cord injury, Bell's palsy, cervical spondylosis. I don't think that's right, but I'm going with it. Guillain-Barr syndrome. Um, and then there's like functional disorders like headaches, epilepsy, dizziness. Um, and then there's like degeneration of like Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, ALS, Huntington's disease, and Alzheimer's disease. And this is what I don't like about this. is They, they list this as, as part of a a side, an effect, or I don't want to say side effect, but one of the the causations of vaccines. But like when you look into like what signs and symptoms of nervous system disorders are, it's like persistent or sudden onset of headaches, or a headache that changes or is different, or tingling, or weakness of the limbs, or memory loss, things like that. But these are all things that you don't have as a child. Like there's no way of knowing if a child has memory loss because they're a baby. And <laughs> I just realized I, that. I mean, I mean, look, I love my son. I love my son with everything inside of me, but that little SOB forgets where he leaves the hat and he cries and cries and cries. And look, it's on his head. You know what a miracle son. Um, so that's part of the problem with this is like they're pointing to all of this, these things, but there's absolutely no way to measure most of them. Like and and on uh, a side effect of like a side note of that, if a child is going to have a seizure, they're going to have a seizure. And whether it manifests or not, when there's there's a vaccine, there's no way of knowing. It's not fair to point at a vaccine as the reason for a seizure. Um, and. I I say all of this because there is insufficient evidence to indicate that there is a relation between a lot of these vaccines and permanent neurological damage. That is where I'm going to leave it at that. But I hope you see the problem with this broad stroke of chronic nervous system dysfunction, because 
it's really hard to test for a lot of these things in a child. There's no, unless there's something like literature tells doctors that unless it manifests itself, there's no reason to look for it. And you're not going to be looking to see if your kid has a stroke, if they're perfectly healthy, you're going to look to see like if the child is losing weight and they start turning a little yellow, you're going to say, okay, they're not eating enough and they're a little jaundice, but you're not going to sit there and say that if they break their arm, they're going to say, well, let's do a rectal exam. You know, does that make sense? Yep. All right, so for that one, we are got that one. It's just just so nebulous. It's really hard to like lay down a true thing on that. Anaphylaxis. This one's going to be pretty easy. I just have a study right here. Anaphylaxis is essentially a um, an allergic reaction, which anybody can have a real allergic reaction to just about anything, depending on what your genetics determine. Here's a study. We identified 33 confirmed vaccine-triggered anaphylaxis cases that occurred after 25,173,965 vaccine doses. The rate of anaphylaxis was 1.31 per million vaccine doses. This has nothing to do with vaccines themselves. It's people's genetics that are, once again, sometimes things go haywire. But I'll take yeah, those I will take those odds any day. <laughs> Josh, I'm done with anaphylaxis. Um, oh yeah. So actually, uh, we so, already covered febrile seizures pretty much, um, just because it got mixed in with the brain uh, encephalopathy. I'm sorry for doing that, Josh. No, you're fine. Um, just for just a quick overview of it. Um, uh, so febrile seizures are fevers that cause a child to experience spasms or jerky movements called it's called seizures, and seizures caused by fever are called febrile seizures. Um, they are most common with fevers of 102 degrees Fahrenheit, or for my my uh, Celsius people. 38.9 look at you um, or or higher um, and the one thing I wanted to point out is that up to five percent of children who have a febrile seizure at some time in, at some time in their life so five percent of young children will experience one um, they happen in children between the ages of six months and five years with most occurring between 14 to 18 months of age about one out of every three children who have a febrile seizure will have at least one more during childhood. Um, and I wanted to be fair with this. Uh, I, I did come across this in my research. There is a small increased risk for febrile seizures after the MMR and MMRV vaccines. Yeah. But let's be fair. It's because they're putting a live virus inside of you and your body's adjusting to it. So yep. an attenuated one. Yes. Um, we already so that, covered Julian. Yeah, we already covered Julian Barr syndrome well up at the top of the episode. Let's go to brachial neuritis. So brachial neuritis. Um, <laughs> this is fun. Uh, it's just basically arm and shoulder pain. What? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's basically uh, it, like it presents itself as severe shoulder or arm pain associated with like reduced range of movement. And my, my it just really quickly, this is all I'm going to really have to say. It may be confused with a more common diagnosis of rotator cuff pathology or like frozen shoulder or shoulder arthritis or some sort of a cervical spondylosis. I believe I'm saying that correctly. Yeah. But yeah. So you know how we say uh, there is <laughs> pain at the spot of where you get the shot? Yeah, the smallpox vaccine specifically. That's why a lot of people weren't wanting to get uh, poked. Yeah. So... This, this is that. Okay, that fair enough. We've already covered that one too. Wow, we've done some footwork. Now, this is going to be my We're last one. so good at our job. This, yeah, pat on the backs everywhere. Uh, this is going to be my last long one in terms of these because I think this is the more uh, up-to-date thing now that the Marisol is out of the picture. 
acute chronic arthritis, and this is associated with supposedly aluminum vaccines. Now, aluminum is an adjuvant in a vaccine, which makes one that is not a whole cell or partial cell uh, vaccine work. Remember how I talked about splicing some genes in there, like some certain proteins to get the antibodies to work well? This is what the yeah. adjuvant's for. It makes it work more effectively. Now, there is something called autoimmune slash inflammatory syndrome induced by adjuvants, also known as Asia. I that That's how they made it. And the person- Like the who, country? It, it, that's the shortening for it. They're calling it Asia syndrome. Okay. And uh, so this was proposed by Dr. Yehuda Schoenfeld. And his paper on aluminum adjuvants in the HPV vaccine was retracted. There was a lot of scare about the HPV vaccine for a while, especially in India with Bill Gates. We can mention that. But once again, they blame deaths on people that ate pesticide and uh, died from a snake bite, as some of the people that died during that vaccine trial. You'll notice that happens a lot and they'll use it anyway. Anyway, this guy previously did a paper on uh, aluminum adjuvants in HPV, and it was completely retracted. This guy is not very reputable. And I'm going to go ahead and read what they said about it. This article has been withdrawn at the request of the editor-in-chief due to serious concerns regarding the scientific soundness of the article. Review by the editor-in-chief and evaluation by outside experts confirmed that the methodology is seriously flawed and the claims that the article makes are unjustified. As an international peer-reviewed journal, we believe it is our duty to withdraw the article from further circulation and to notify the community of this issue. Whoopsie. So... Another thing is that there is no mandatory limit time between exposure and symptoms for a lot of these injuries to qualify them. Um, it can be two days to 23 years of ex after exposure that you develop arthritis. So look at that one. Um, and in the list, it says post-vaccination symptoms like macrophagic fasciitis, Gulf War syndrome, sick building syndrome, and siliconosis. They, they keep getting a whole list in some of these tables. And the arthritis is lumped into there. Now, there are some easy refutations to aluminum and arthritis, like this article with sources in the show notes, obviously. In 2017, Ameritunga and co-workers identified two studies refuting this claim. In one study, the hepatitis B vaccine containing an aluminum adjuvant did not exacerbate symptoms in patients with systemic lupus. A second study evaluated the incidence of autoimmune disease in more than 18,000 patients who received subcutaneous allergen-specific immunotherapy containing large quantities of injected aluminum adjuvants. <gasps> that was a long sentence. Patients receiving the injected aluminum were found to have lower incidence of autoimmune disease compared with controls. The authors concluded that the current studies do not support the existence of Asia. That's right, that whole continent does not exist. This guy, uh, this Yehuda Schoenfeld guy, is not... He, he's another one of these grifters. And I don't even know if he has a patent or not, but he's doing something wrong. So, um, let's go with the numbers of the aluminum amount in vaccines. As we had mentioned, uh, or wanted to mention before, the amount of thimerosal in a vaccine is much lower than the amount that a kid would get from uh, that uh, the amount of mercury that a kid would get from breast milk over uh, X month period. So, um, the publichealth.org article on is aluminum safe? Aluminum is the third most common naturally occurring element after oxygen and silicone. It is found in plants, soil, air, and water. A breastfed infant will naturally ingest around 7 milligrams of aluminum in her diet throughout the first six months of her life. In contrast, the standard vaccines administered over the six months of an infant's life contain an average of just 4.4 milligrams of aluminum throughout their life. 
Aluminum has been used safely for over six decades in vaccines with no scientific evidence indicating otherwise. So does that guy, does that help you guys a little bit? Yes. Good. Perfect. Um, what we have next? Yeah, I'm next. Ryan, how do you say this word? <laughs> I'm a try. Uh, I think it's thrombocytopenia. That's what I was. Yeah, it looks like penis at the end. That's what I got out of it. Um, <laughs> we were going back to season one, baby. Um, thom- thrombocytopenia, for those of you who don't know, so everyone, uh, it is a rare but important adverse event following a, uh, a vaccination. So thrombocytopenia is it's a condition in which you have a low blood platelet count. Um, so your platelets are like colorless blood cells that help blood clot, essentially. And platelets stop bleeding by clumping up and forming plugs in blood vessels or injuries. So like um, you scratch yourself and you start bleeding and then it stops. There you go. That's why. Um, and and part of the symptoms of thrombocytopenia is like easy or excessive bruising, superficial bleeding, um, prolonged bleeding from cuts, like I just said, bleeding from your gums or nose, blood and urine, yada, yada, yada. Um, here's the thing about thrombocytopenia. The only vaccine for which there is a demonstrated uh, cause and effect relationship is the MMR vaccine. But, but, and here's a big but, in this case, it is significantly lower than the observed during natural course of diseases that vaccines prevents. So it is so fucking rare, but it happened once somewhere at some point. I say once, it probably happened more than that, but it occurred at some point, And so they had to put it on there that it is a potential reason or potential list of effects that may happen. Once again, most of the population is vaccinated and has not experienced these symptoms. Okay, the next two are pretty much, unless you want to talk about it much, Josh, is just the smallpox uh, association. Uh, the infections that get in there, which guess what, are solved by thimerosal or other uh, antimicrobials that are put into vaccines. And then we also have death, which is also associated with, associated with the smallpox vaccine way back in the day, mostly due to the whole, you know, uh, infection thing. Uh, and also from the polio where it was just it was contaminated. They didn't do it right. It isn't the vaccine as a whole across the board. Uh, Josh, do you want to comment on the whole death aspect of it, considering it's such a broad thing? Yeah. Um, so basically, I decided to not really put too much into this. Not that I didn't do the research, but as in, I'm not going to bore you. I literally just have a quick little snippet about it because I don't want to beat a dead horse. And we've really covered this a lot, um, especially in part one with the history and, and, and this one as well. But there was no concerning pattern noted among death reports submitted from 1997 to 2013. The main causes of death were consistent with most common causes of death in the U.S. population. So gunshots. One in 23,000, right? Yep, something like that. So the smallpox, the polio, and the measles vaccine, basically there was no effect in change of deaths other than ordinary everyday human life. Also, smallpox vaccines are not administered in common today because it's it doesn't exist right now except for in two labs. So that's nice. That's a nice little thing we get to enjoy. All right. So moving on to shock and unusual shock-like state. Uh, Patricia E. Vimir Debot. I think I said that right. Um, she's a co-writer of 20 studies of vaccine effects, most of them with scary names. Uh, she began her publication on a study of DTP in shock like this. 
Whole cell vaccines against pertussis can induce a hypotonic or a hyporesponsive episode or shock-like syndrome, in parentheses, collapse, in children. But this may also occur with diphtheria and tetanus vaccines. Acellular pertussis vaccine and without vaccination. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> that's interesting. Without vaccination too, huh? Uh, two prospective studies estimated that the rate of collapse after vaccination were considerable. 13 out of three of uh, 35,284 and nine out of 15,752. Um, she had a comment on this study that said, and a lot of people point to this study as being like, this causes shock. But the comment on it was the risk of recurrent collapse is higher than the background rate, which is low for second and subsequent vaccinations. But our data show that recurrence of collapse is exceptionally low. A scheduled case control study of all cases reported in 1995 would add to the numbers and contribute towards an understanding of risk factors and the effect of paracetamol used prophylactically. So it's saying that paracetamol could probably help with this. You just take some some acetaminophen, like just good, yeah. Tylenol. I, yeah, you take Tylenol, and then you're okay. <laughs> okay. Or is it? Yeah. Our preliminary results suggest that stopping further doses of pertussis vaccine is unnecessary and that vaccinations can still take place in a child health care clinic without special precautions. Parents, however, do need the guidance and reassurance and vaccination as an outpatient should be considered in the few cases which parents' fears are not allayed. So she's saying, yeah, this can happen, but it's very rare and also it can be taken care of in a clinical section, uh, you know, in a clinical environment, which is when most vaccines are given. One little extra tidbit on it. So this is a study of people that um, got this the first time they got the DTP vaccine. They had this shock-like state or the collapse. Here's the extra tidbit. The other 84 children received further pertussis vaccine of DTP uh, IPV, totaling 236 doses. 74 received the full three doses. None of the children had recurrent collapse and other adverse events were only minor. No systematic precautions were taken although about half of the children were given paracetamol prophylactically for the second vaccination. Most of them did not take it for subsequent doses. At the time, the follow-up with the children's health and development showed no particular abnormalities. One child who had not received further pertussis vaccinations developed severe pertussis. So that, that goes into the DTaP booster thing. If you don't re receive the booster, you're going to catch pertussis. The original DTP was fine. But it shows that, yeah, you might have a collapse on a follow thing, like a one-time deal. But the other side of it is you're going to get pertussis, most likely. So enjoy that one. Josh, moving on. Yeah, so uh, the next one is protracted and inconsolable crying. Um, we kind of covered this in the earlier part of the show. but So basically what it is is it's common for babies to cry and be upset after getting a shot. Uh, I want to point out that most adults are the same fucking way. Um, I have... Yeah, can I just speak out as the uh, probably the one of the three of us who has the complete lack of tolerance for needles? Um, I usually tell people that I will cry, scream, and vomit in some particular order the next time my blood is drawn. I've never passed out from a needle, but man, I start hyperventilating. Um, I start like it's 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 instinctive. I I don't know what it is. If I go to a dentist, drills and stuff, no problem. But you put a needle near me. And I start, sh I literally start shaking. Really, it's bizarre. Oh, it's bizarre. I, I don't, I don't know what it is. I, I really, I'm getting my blood drawn for life insurance soon, and I like don't know what I'm gonna do. <laughs> it's I'm like, it's the I'm worst. kind of the same, Greg. It's so bad. I, I never passed out. Like I, I said, have. but man, it. 
Oh, well. At our high school while uh, donating blood. They they slapped me awake and finished the drawing. I... (laughs) Give me your blood. I I don't give a good shit, and it doesn't bother me, so I guess it's just genetics or something. I don't know. Are you one of those freaks who looks at the needle and stuff while they're doing it? No, no, I do not. So that is the only thing, is I can't watch the needle being stuck into me. But the other day, well, I say the other day, um, well, recently um, when I had my, I uh, had a flu shot um, or I had a shot because I thought I had the flu or something. I don't know. Before all this nonsense, it's all blending together. I don't remember. But they gave it to me in my butt and I didn't. <laughs> well, I, I was like, I've never I, well, I've never had a shot in my butt before. And um, I got to tell you, my getting butt? a shot in my butt was way better than getting a shot in my arm. So think about that. You know, a part of me almost feels like it might be. I mean, I got a lot more cushion for the pushing back there. So um, <laughs> back to <laughs> protracted and consolable crying. Um, here's the thing about about actually listing this as a, a side effect. It definitely happens. Um, crying is persistent and frequently inconsolable in a child in this particular case. And occasionally there is like an episode of them crying for like a 24 hour period. And it it even uh, my research even showed crying of this nature is common in infancy and many causes are suspected. So it could be because of the vaccine. It could be because they're hungry. You just don't know. The baby doesn't have any way of communicating that with you. And it's really hard to get a number on it because there are just so many underlying issues why the child might be crying. Well, let's just lump this one in right there with it because I think it's appropriate. They also have, uh, as of recent, I've seen a couple of Yahoo forums that have been like, my, my child can't roll over now after I got the vaccine. What's going on? Is the vaccine? And some people luckily have gone in and said the simple answer to this. Where did your baby get its shot? Oh, they got in the leg. Yeah, the leg's really sore. It's not going to roll over on that side for yeah, a little shit, while. Huh? Give it a day or two. You know, it's... They're babies. They can't communicate this stuff, and you can't really communicate back to them that this is okay. It's going to go away. Um, it's a lot of like parents being very, very... They care about their children, obviously. So when something like that happens, you need an explanation. But vaccines, it's not it. There's too much fear in this right now. Um, Look, as a parent, I'll tell you this. My life would be so much less stressful if I didn't care about my kid. Yeah. But I do. <laughs> Lastly, let's get to syncope. Guys, this is just fainting. And as I had said to Greg, I have fainted from getting a shot. Uh, There is a chance of you fainting after getting a vaccine within a couple of hours or so or within uh, just immediately afterwards. But guess what? There's no recurring incidence of it. It's literally just sometimes people are squeamish or it's it's not even like a reaction. It is mostly a psychological thing. And the whole fainting, just make sure that somebody knows that you've got a shot if you're that worried about it and sit down, relax, rest for a little bit. You just don't want to bump your head. That's it. I didn't even isn't write that. To... Isn't that also the name of uh, Christopher Nolan's production company? Is it? Syncope? I think I think Maybe. it is. Also, there is no research on the numbers of this of how often it happens because fainting has no lasting effects unless you hit your head. That's what it said from any website that I've read. Um, yeah, but then that turns from fainting to fucking concussion. Yep. Yeah. Vaccines cause concussions. <laughs> um, okay. So that's it for the table. Bobby. Now we're going to talk about just a little bit of a wrap up for this. The last thing that I think is outstanding is formaldehyde. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, formaldehyde and, and oh, okay. So this, this was interesting. Um, I have some numbers here to really bring this to light. So there was concerns about safety have focused on formaldehyde because 
uh, high concentrations of formaldehyde can damage DNA, which is the building block of your genes. And it can cause cancerous changes in the cells in, in laboratory. So although formaldehyde is diluted during the manufacturing process for vaccines, um, residue, residual, there we go, quantities of formaldehyde may be found in several current vaccines. While formaldehyde is likely, <laughs> is a likely cause of some sort of cancer that I can't say, it starts with an N, but it's a naso, nasopharyngeal. Nasopharyngeal. Sounds like, there we go. Um, the quantities contained in vaccines are not sufficient to cause cancer. And the reason I say this is Quantities of formaldehyde are at least 600 times greater than the amount contained in vaccines have been fed safely to animals in drinking water. Fun. Also, formaldehyde is necessary for human metabolism. So look at that. It's just the small Oh, that amounts. was my next note. Yep, that's it. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a scary... It's embalming fluid. We know that. But that's pure formaldehyde. That is uh, OG formaldehyde. It's just, and now we're like to current day, and there's two uh, philosophical standpoints that we have to look at. One of them we've well, kind of well, touched. I, I do, I do want to say this. It's kind of like the, the you know, you got sodium, you got chloride in your vaccines. It's like you look at sodium and you look at chloride. You're like, yep, those aren't fun. You don't want to, you don't want to take those. But when you put them together, you get fucking salt. table salt. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you know. Today we have stuff, anything from like the suffocated baby that recently happened in the news where a woman said that her baby suffocated in sleep when it turns out that she rolled over on him, which is tragic, but that wasn't a vaccine. You're going to see more of those in the news as things go on. Any reason to attach to vaccines, people will do it, especially in the time right now. And I think, guys, we might eventually, if the crowd's interested, doing some speculation on another vaccine that might be coming up in the future. And I would... I would be willing to talk about it if the the audience as a whole is willing to. But let's get back to the last two philosophical things. Um, and uh, Josh, do you want to start with the first point that a lot of people are saying? Yeah. So this um, this was made very popular like throughout many of the anti-vax movement. And Larry Cook was one who championed this, uh, at least the first one that comes to mind for me. And it is too many vaccines at once. <laughs> Now, I'm going to be honest with you guys, before I really started looking into vaccines, not even before this, before I really did my research when I was going to have my son, when my wife was pregnant with him, I started looking into like, well, what is it about, you know, getting all these shots at once? Like, I, I don't. It's a reasonable question. I don't think that's like, that's a great example. Again, what we talked about in the first episode, right? It's not that these people are necessarily just like stupid sheep or whatever. It's that, I mean, you're a parent and people are going to stick all these needles in your kid one after the other. You're, you, you kind of want to be in an at face buyer, value. It can know? be alarming. I totally agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing is like, nobody wants to see their kids stuck with all these needles and like have them upset because like they're going to cry because they're getting poked with something and it hurts. And um, measles, and mumps I, and rubella, the three in one combo, you know, that is what sounds scary. Exactly. So like I, I wanted to, to, to start off with this saying like this is a total acceptable and like logical question to ask. Like I know I harped on it in, in part one about asking questions is fine, but like. It totally makes sense to sit there and be like, okay, well, let's see why do they do it this way. And I'm going to knock it out really quickly. And my first note literally is from the CDC. 
And it recommends that childhood vaccine schedule, the way that they have it laid out, which you should follow, it ensures children get the best protection during many different stages in growth and development. From the moment babies are born, they are exposed to numerous bacteria and viruses on a daily basis. And with everything going on right now, I think that can really hit home, not even with babies, just with people in general. Um, and even simple things like eating food introduces new bacteria to the body, i.e. botulism. You know, we, we covered that. That's one way that just think of that as an example. Um, numerous bacteria live inside of the, the mouth and the nose and an infant places his or her hands or other objects in his or her mouth hundreds of times every hour, exposing their immune system to more germs. When a child has a cold, he or she is exposed to up to 10 antigens, which um, like strep throat is one way to think about it, is like 25 to 50 antigens. Each vaccine in the childhood vaccination schedule has between 1 and 69 antigens. A child who receives all recommended vaccines in the immunization schedule may be exposed to up to 320 antigens through vaccination by the age of 2. And the, the last thing I want to say is getting multiple vaccinations at the same time has been shown to be safe. Yeah. And the body holds, handles, just to knock it in there, thousands of antigens at once and you don't even know it because you stay healthy because we are equipped to handle them. Right. Yeah. Dr. Offit talks about in his book and um, um, not bad, bad advice. Yeah. Bad advice. He says like he, he kind of gives the the moment the baby is born, how much they're exposed to you know, parallel. And, you know, it's just, I mean, when you put it in such simple terms, like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a non-issue. Yeah. And lastly, there's one that I think is the most important with this is a lot of people saying, and this goes all the way back to why we did a whole separate part is this. I believe parents should have a choice to get their children vaccinated. Uh, this is the whole fight against mandatory vaccination. This is going to school and such. Um, and we've talked about it. The, well-being of the people is the utmost highest law. It's the uh, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, I get the idea of having a choice and we really don't want to have things imposed on us in this free world and such. But there's the idea of herd immunity, which is extremely important. This is what's going to save humanity is herd immunity. And as a simple way to look at it, let's talk about if you're playing a video game, you're in a little platformer. You jump onto a, a little platform, like a, a rock, and there's a whole bunch of rocks uh, around it. Getting from one end of the level to the other is very easy to do if there's tons of rocks by you and options to jump from point A to point B to point C to point Z, which ends up being the finish line. Now, in some platformers, which I, by the way, my least favorite form of uh, a video game, I hate them um, because I'm bad at them. I, I'm bad at them. I, I understand they can be great, but I'm bad at them. You played a lot of Cuphead for someone. I quit playing Cuphead. <laughs> Carlene and Alex finished that one. Um, That's fair. Say you're on this platformer, and then as you jump, the platform starts to fall, and you have to jump to another one. And then that one starts to fall, and then they don't come back. They're gone. They don't. You don't have these other platforms to jump to to be safe. You can die and not make it to your goal. Now, if you want to go to the really hard, like Super Mario Maker levels. There will be some where there's only one platform in the entire level and you have to do some insane jump to get from one side to the other. Things get harder. This is how herd immunity works. 
Some people cannot receive vaccines due to stuff like anaphylaxia and stuff or genetic conditions where they will have negative effects from it and possibly life-changing effects from getting these vaccines. If you know that that is the situation, then you shouldn't get a vaccine for your child. However, that is extremely rare. Now, let's go ahead and say that there are people that don't choose it. There's a chance that you will not see your kid still get measles because everyone else around them is vaccinated. And a measles virus gets out somewhere and tries to get onto them, it's a non-starter. We can be the falling platforms that stop the measles virus from jumping to somebody that they can get steady ground on. That is how this works. Herd immunity is pretty much protecting everybody else by making sure you are able and protected. It is um, the core principle as to how humanity has survived up to this day. It is insurmountable. And the problem is, is that if more people are having the choice to not get vaccinated, all of those platforms are coming back for the virus to jump to. That's what I want to say on herd immunity, the easiest way to explain it. Do you guys have any more comment on that? No, you pretty much hit the nail on the head, bro. Um, all right, so before we end this very long two parts, which, guys, thanks for sticking with us, both the audience and Greg and Josh. <laughs> thank you so much. I know I pushed you guys a little bit for this, but I really wanted to. Oh, dude, don't even. Come on now. This is great. And yes, you know, we got the kids and the whole pandemic thing going. But obviously, like, I mean, I don't want to get too sappy, but the show is, as we always say, it's it's such a great excuse for us to hang out, even socially distanced. And it's such a great outlet. I mean, I love it. I love that we've given five hours or, you know, four and a half hours of content around this really important topic. I mean, you can argue it feels fringe or whatever you want, but this stuff affects a lot of people. And I think I like to think we maybe helped y'all better understand it. Well, I just want to give one last little thing from the panic virus uh, that I think really encapsulates this is why it's important. Once again, we're not here to attack anybody that is afraid to get vaccines. We are here to attack the people that are grifting for their own personal benefit. And this comes from one of the omnibus case hearings for when people could get payouts saying that thimerosal affected them. And this is from the Michelle Cedillo case I had mentioned previously. Um, Here we go. On February 12, 2009, seven years after the start of the proceedings, rulings were issued for the first three omnibus autism cases. The cases consisted of 28 expert witnesses and 939 pieces of medical literature involved. A special master overseeing the cases in the vaccine court said, I have not required a level of proof greater than more probable than not, which has also been described as 50% plus a feather. I have looked beyond the epidemiologic evidence to determine whether the overall evidence, i.e. medical opinion and circumstantial evidence and other evidence considered as whole, tips the balance even slightly in favor of a causation showing to any of Michelle's conditions. This is a case in which the evidence is so one-sided that any nuances in the interpretation of the causation case law would make no difference to the outcome of the case. He has also said that Cedillo family were, quote, misled by physicians who are guilty, in my view, of gross medical misjudgment. Once again, you could correlate um, organic food sales to a rise in autism. This is not something you should be afraid of. And once again, autism is not something to be afraid of over a dead child, to be blunt enough. Does anybody else have anything to say about this? Because just please, people get vaccinated and there's going to be, I guarantee, in the next few months, more scares. And I'm glad to talk about it more, but 
it's a little bit ridiculous because it involves even the Q community and such. But this is something that's going to keep going on, on and on and on. But it needs to be um, nibbed in the bud as soon as possible. Um, I just kind of want to heart back to what we we talked about, I believe, in part one. Specifically, when you talked about herd immunity, I wanted to bring it up again. When you choose to not get your child vaccinated, it's not like not wearing a seatbelt where it's only going to affect you. It's like driving drunk. It affects everyone around you and is potentially dangerous to those who can't get those vaccinations. And particularly with mm-hmm. my mom, who suffers from um, a, a, an autoimmune or uh, uh, an immune system, uh, a compromised immune system, um, you know, she's not afforded the luxury of getting all of these new vaccines. So, like, if this new vaccine that should be coming out in the near future happens, I don't know if she's going to be able to get it. So, like, herd immunity is vitally important to the survival of my mother. Um, and it, it's very important to me that I, I hope people understand that, like, this isn't something, this isn't a money-making scheme. This is for the health and well-being of people. And I hope all of you see that the work that we put in and what we were trying to accomplish, you know, we put our own little comedic spin on it. But at the end of the day, this is something that I hold very near and dear to my heart because as someone who is about to have a second child in the very near future, um, I don't know what I would do if they got sick because somebody felt like this was all fake and it was all a money-making business and it was all, you know, something that could have been prevented, you know, and, and and that's basically what it boils down to. So I I won't grandstand on it too much, but, um, you know, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for staying with us. We know this is a lot to take in, but this is a heavy hitter. You know, this is, this is a lot to, to dive into. And we, I hope we, we did our due just due diligence and gave it justice. Yeah. I don't want to like, I don't want to end on a bad note, but it's like, I literally had a colleague yesterday where people were talking about the vaccine for COVID and they had a paragraph, like this, these paragraphs about why do we trust this stuff? They put M, they put, um, what they put in it? They, I think they said MSG, formaldehyde, mercury, aluminum. She did, she hit all the big check marks and basically was like, they're all profit. I mean, just this whole thing. And I'm like, if someone reads your comment, and decides not to get a vaccine, whether it's COVID or something else, that blood's on your hands. I, I just, I can't, I just, I, I can't fathom that people do it, but I see it. And, you know, be smart. It's okay to be skeptical. You should ask what you're putting in your body and what doctors are giving you. But, like, just don't reject good evidence. Don't, like, <laughs> the anti-vax move is bullshit. I think after all this, I hope y'all understand that. And I know, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just get so frustrated when I read these things and we're doing all this work and we're, there's all these amazing people like Dr. Offit out there who are trying to literally save lives. Brian Deere, Seth Manukin, everybody that has stood up. Bill Gates. I'm going to say that right now. Go fuck yourselves. Anybody that's saying Bill Gates is not trying to. You know what? Nobody's listening that thinks he's a terrible person for trying to support vaccines. We'll get to that another time. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, y'all get the point. I mean, we're kind of beating a dead horse now, but yeah, it's just, you know, vaccinate your damn kids. Yeah. Um, so everybody, thank you for getting into this very long finale with us uh, through season eight. Uh, expect some more lighthearted stuff, I would say sooner than later. And also we might do some bonus material. Oh, we can tell them. We got something coming yeah, real we're gonna soon. We're going to do some movie reviews, I think. 
And also, um, yeah, we, we might do some bonus content that's a little bit tangential to this. Hopefully we can push that out to you in a good amount of time. Uh, also look out for some other things that we might be releasing in the future. Um, guys, secret project for this season eight of Rumor Flies. Jesus Christ. I'm Ryan. I am Josh, and I guess we, we are not going to tell them where to reach us because we've gone long enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Greg. Check us out at rumorfliespodcast.com, at rumorflies on various social media, patreon.com slash rumorflies. You know where to find us. If it's rumorflies, rumorflies it's at gmail.com. Yell at us. Hell Bye. yeah. Tweet at us. Ryan and I have been shitposting. Yes, it's been please. great. <laughs> Love you guys. Bye. 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 Bye.